Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Alright, Derek. Uh sorry it took me a minute to get on. Heather and I just got back from apartment hunting. Um uh, we're at looking for a new place to stay, as you know. So I think we found something good. Yeah. Uh, my Heather, by the way, not Heather the librarian that's on right now, Heather Gunnell. But uh, you know, anyway, I think we found a place. It's pretty cool. Seven bedrooms. Oh yeah. Twelve foot ceilings. Wow. Um, all the neighbors are Satanists. There's a really cool herb garden inside. Wait, what? There's like a cool hidden closet. There's just one big problem, and we're kind of iffy about it. I don't know how we feel about it. The devil worship? No, the rent's seven thousand dollars. Have you seen this fucking apartment in New York? Are you kidding me? Womp womp womp. womp. What's up, everybody? What's a bigger problem and menace to society? The rising rate of rent or Roman Polanski himself. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hey, <laughs> True, true. Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast in which me, movie monster boy Aaron, and my cowardly co host Derek explore horror movies of all ages, subgenres, etc., and discuss the themes, phobias therein, and uh, talk about. You know, are they still relevant? Are they still scary? And how do they come across for people who are hard junkies like me and newbies like Derek? This week, we have a special guest on returning from our discussion of Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, we had you on for Haunting of Hill House, but then we also had you on for the Patreon episode, too, right? I think we had you on for both. It was just for the Patreon episode. Just for the Patreon. Okay, so then this is your first official. First time on the main show, yep. Hell yeah. So for those of you who are not Patreon members, Join the Patreon. It's $5 a month, and we have lots of good bonus content on there. But the guest this week is Heather Gunnell. She was on our episode where we discussed Shirley Jackson and the backstory of the Haunting of Hill House novel. So yeah, this is her debut on the main show. Welcome, Heather, first of all. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for being the one who finally pushed us into discussing this movie that Derek and I have (laughs) flip-flopped on for a while because of, you know, obvious reasons if you are aware of anything to do with this movie Roman Polanski so I'm kind of glad that we are having this discussion with somebody who has a firm opinion on the movie and we can have a adult conversation about the nuances of you know art and everything else that goes along with that so yeah I'm excited to talk about this thank you for bringing this episode up we'll talk about that in a minute but first Heather do you have Anything new that you want to talk about? I guess give us your spiel since this is your first main episode. Uh, what do you do and uh, anything else that you want to discuss? Yeah, 
So I am, as you said, a librarian. I have the really long and complicated title of Youth Services Collection Management Librarian because (laughs) I am split between two departments. So half of my time is spent in the children's department actively working with patrons and running story time. And half of my time is spent purchasing youth materials for my library system. So I'm the one responsible for buying everything for kids for all three of our branches at the library. Well, three branches and a mobile branch. You've messaged me before saying that you kind of use your (laughs) career in order to get specific books in the library so you can also read them, which I think is great. (laughs) Yeah. I only buy all the used stuff, although I do read a lot of middle grade, especially there's some really good middle grade horror out there. Um, That's the stuff for the 8 to 12 year old range. My counterpart does all of the adult purchasing. So I'm like, hey, Hey, I just finished the first graphic novel in this series. It was that, that one that you had recommended. Where's the furthest place from here? I'm like, I just finished it. We, we need the second one. We don't have the second one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and especially with ebooks, too, because once we purchase those, it's like 10 minutes before it's in the system. So then I'm emailing the gal who does those for adults like, hey, hey, we don't we don't have the ebook for Rosemary's Baby. I need it. <laughs> we mentioned this when you were on the Patreon episode. And then I think we mentioned this when you had initially reached out to us because we shouted out you hitting us up on Facebook and on social media because, hey, fans, our Facebook page apparently keeps growing. <laughs> if you want to reach out to us at any point, please do. We love to talk horror and everything. But one of the things that you had mentioned is how good of a resource local oh, library absolutely. is, especially for the streaming service, mm-hmm. yep. that there's actually some good stuff you can find on on there as well. So again, to our listeners, if you're looking for a specific horror or even book or video otherwise, maybe hit up your library and see what they can do for you. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, libraries always want to know what their patrons are looking for. So if your library doesn't have it, they might be interested in purchasing it or they can always do an interlibrary loan. I did that a while back when we had initially talked about me coming on for this movie, but we hadn't picked a date or anything yet. There's a book out there called This Is Not a Dream, The Making of Rosemary's Baby. And it was must, apparently some kind of collector's edition because it's impossible to find for less than 100 bucks now. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not paying that for it. Wow. So I ILL'd it from another library to look through it. And it's actually mostly photographs. There was only a little bit of writing in it. So it was a big, beautiful book. But yeah, thanks to Interlibrary Loan, I was able to actually read it. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Also, too, for our uh, main show listeners who aren't on the Patreon, Heather might be arguably our biggest super fan. So also a good reason to have you on. Yes. Bug the guy enough and you might get to join the show. <laughs> yeah, you might, you might get to hop on. Yeah. yeah. We, are, we are simple people. We are not uh, without our flaws. One of our flaws is, I don't know, be nice to us and talk shit that we enjoy. And we'll probably invite you on. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, cool. Yeah. I'm excited to get into discussing Rosemary's Baby. But first, as usual, we're going to jump into some quick recommendations of other horror stuff that we've been into lately, whether that's other horror movies, books, comics, TV shows, video games, whatever other kind of media there is. Seeing that we have a guest on, we will obviously defer to her first. So, Heather, what have you got that you would like to talk about that is other horror stuff? Yeah, I just have a couple of things. I've been in the worst reading slump lately. And I spent this week reading the book of Rosemary's Baby, but I'll talk more about that as we get into the movie. But I did finally watch this movie that I've been wanting to watch since I heard about it last year, Lord of Misrule. We just have to let the police do their job. They'll have you chiddler back in no time. My daughter went missing. Your lord does not have your child. 
Then who has taken my daughter? Every year we drive him out. But he stands in the fields and waits. Who stands in the fields and waits? Grace. The demon didn't take Grace. These people are sick. You're afraid, Rickard. He's here. You'll give us great miracles. Time to revel in chaos. You're gonna get a little girl back. This is how we love. The midnight sun will rise. And you will see his glory. It's a full core one. And oh, I loved it so much. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say it's a great movie because I go by vibes. It's absolutely my kind of folk horror movie. It was elements of Wicker Man, elements of the ritual, small little English village, as many folk horrors are. A new vicar comes to town and she's you know leading the church. And it's one of those that got a festival coming up rooted in ancient pagan practices, but it's just kind of part of the village now. And her daughter has been selected to be this like special part in it. I can't remember the word that they used for it now. And so they go to the festival and the night of the festival, the, her daughter goes missing. Okay. And it's about, you know, trying to find where is her daughter? What is going on in this village? It's got that cute little village with underlying secrets situation going on. It just hit every little folk horror element that I absolutely adore. Hell yeah. I know that this has Tuppence Middleton in it, which, yes. what a British name. That's the most British yeah. name. <laughs> yeah, she plays the vicar. Yeah. I have liked her and what I have seen her in. She's in Jupiter Ascending, which I'm definitely a Wachowski apologist. And Jupiter Ascending is not great, but that movie is at least fun and fucking goes for it. And she is one of the villains in that movie i also liked her a lot in possessor the brandon cronenberg movie she's good in that too so yeah i'd be curious to see her actually carrying a movie this was also on my list of stuff to get around to how did you watch it by the way it is available on amazon prime you can rent or cool. purchase it i did because i enjoyed it i did wind up just purchasing it because i usually have digital credit yeah same it, anytime that they're like Oh, do you want this shit to get here like a day later for a dollar credit? Yeah, just I don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. So, okay, cool. You're my go-to person to talk to about yep. folk horror because that's also kind of how yep. you messaged us was when Aaron brought up the folk horror collection mm -hmm. that you got a while back, Aaron. Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched. Yep. Yes, that's it. It's funny to me that you really lean that heavily into folk horror, but it does look interesting from like the pictures and poster I looked up as you were talking about it. Yeah. And then I also have a book. This is actually one I read a few months ago, but I just loved it so much. And I don't see it talked about much on Book Talk, which is where I get a lot of my horror book recommendations these days. It's another folk horror. This one is called Lute, L-U-T-E, okay. by Jennifer Thorne. It is like a combination of Wicker Man and Final Destination. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Color me intrigued. Yes. The main character is uh, this woman named Nina. She's an American. But she has married into this British family again, tiny little island, and she is now Lady Treadway. She married Lord Treadway. Every seven years, seven people die. 
this island otherwise, aside from that every seven years on the day, they just always refer to it as the day, everything is perfect. Everybody's healthy. There's a war going on in the background, but their island is never affected by it. It's just health and prosperity for seven years. And then on this one day, every seven years, seven people die. And that's kind of where the final destination aspect comes in is you don't really know who it's going to be. It just happens. And so Nina, she's kind of heard this. Everyone keeps talking about the day and she just thinks it's a weird folk festival, kind of like I was talking about with Lord of Misrule. There's one of those holdovers from the old days. She doesn't believe it. But nevertheless, most of the island's children and a few teachers are sent off island for the day to go elsewhere nearby. Her husband is trying to get them to leave. They're supposed to be leaving that day to go somewhere and stuff keeps going wrong and they wind up stuck on the island on that day. She's like, whatever, what's the big deal? You know, you're the lord of the island, we'll stay here. And then the deaths actually start happening and she's like, oh shit, this is real. And she's kind of pissed because she's like, our children are in danger. Our children are still here. I loved everything about a switch. I don't want to give too much about it away. But it was just another one that hit all of the right bullet points for me. And I love the way it ends. Yeah, I've already pre-ordered Jennifer Thorne's next book because I really loved her writing style with this one. Hell yeah. It sounds like there are some thematic shades of Rosemary's Baby going on in there too, as far as distrust of what's actually happening. Can I rely on the people around me? All of that. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely a little bit of the, you know, is my husband really who I think he is kind of aspects, too. Uh And then I'll just give a quick honorable mention to the book I'm currently reading but didn't get finished, and that is The Spite House by Johnny Compton. Okay. And that one's a haunted house story. I'm not terribly far into it yet, but it's just so intriguing already. Uh, Father and whose two daughters, uh, the oldest one is 18, and the youngest, I think, is five or six. They haven't explicitly stated her age. But they're on the run from, we don't know what, they are a black family in Texas. And that is relevant because they, at one point, one of the chapters from the oldest daughter's perspective talks about they're used to being in a more diverse area. They're on the run. So dad's been doing odd jobs, you know, things he can do for cash. Sometimes he's kind of screwed over because people know he's desperate. Mm -hmm. He finds this advertisement for, they want someone to stay in this haunted house and document the paranormal activity that happens. And it's a pretty decent payout for this. And he's like, again, desperate. And so he goes for it because it says no experience necessary. And he winds up getting the job. So I'm only at the part right now where they're just kind of going to the house and checking it out. But I'm very curious because there's already very clearly more going on than we know yet. The little daughter, she feels like a Danny Torrance character. Okay. Yeah. 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 Something's up with the mother because she's not with them. She's referenced, but she's not with them. So I feel like she might be part of the reason they're on the run, but I have no idea. So yeah, I'm only a few chapters in and I'm super intrigued. So that one is The Spite House by Johnny Compton. I love the premise of that. It's such an interesting mix of The Shining and Hill House. Mm-hmm. And even like the elements of, you know, people on the run yeah. kind of set up that you see in, in stuff like the beginning yeah. of Psycho or the first 30 minutes of Psycho. But also the racial aspect on top of all that is also yeah. fascinating to me. So I might have to add this one to my list. Yep. So that's everything I've got right now. Hell yeah. Cool. Awesome. Derek, what have you got? So the last chunk of episodes have just been movies for me because I have my littlest one at home still. And it's just the easiest thing for me to consume right now to have on sometimes in the background. And I tried desperately to have a non-movie recommendation this go around. And I did. 
But then I watched two other movies, and I feel like I need to talk about these two movies, and we're going to have a long conversation anyway on Rosemary's Baby, so I'll just only stick with the movies, and I'll save my non-movie recommendation for next time, because I just had stuff to say about both the movies I watched. The first one I will talk about was one I really liked. It is one we will eventually do pretty down the line on our show. It is one that seems to have been reevaluated as a great horror movie, and that is The Exorcist 3 from 1990. Satan grows stronger. You believe in possession, Father? He has found a haven. Come to take a little blood from your father. He has taken possession. The boy had been crucified. His web widens. I've just never seen anything like this in 20 years. Inside this cell. The killer drove an ingot into each of his eyes and cut off his head. Inside a man. Who are you? I am no one. A man we thought had died 17 years ago. He is inside with us! He will never get away! This time you're going to lose. The real terror is back. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. I don't know that that has just recently been kind of going through a reclamation. I think the reclamation period has been the last 20 years or so, because that movie, from what I understand, if I remember correctly, did pretty well at the box office. Yeah, it, it did $44 million on an $11 million yeah. budget back in 1990. And I think it's one of those things where, like, because there has not been any other good Exorcist content since then, people are, like, really looking back at that one more and more fondly as time goes on. Yeah, Exorcist 3 rocks. It rules, dude. <laughs> A lot of that fucking movie was actually shot around here. Yeah. I talked about that on another Patreon episode as we were going to some of the filming locations yeah. for The Exorcist, but... They revisit a lot of those locations, and then there's even more shit that they filmed around the D.C. area. Yeah, I could tell throughout this movie because it felt very D.C. in some of yeah. those shots. Like when they're racing down the streets in the car to intercept another character at someone's house. That felt like a lot of D.C. area to me, like the more suburbia parts. But this is directed by William Blatty. Yep. Had this movie in the back of my pocket. It's been one I've been wanting to check out since we started our show right up there with Halloween 3 Season the Witch, which we did way earlier. We still haven't done either the original Exorcist or this one yet on our show, but we will. I did not realize this for some reason, that it was actually based off of Legion, the 1983 novel, yes. which is the novel sequel to the novel The Exorcist. And only really indirectly. Yes. It is not a completely direct sequel. It's more just, here is another story kind of in the same universe. Right. But it is very much tracking a serial killer. What I think would be interesting to now that you have watched the movie, there is a work print copy that has a lot of different scenes on it. Oh, yeah. That is available on the like Shout Factory Blu-ray and the 4K. It's not the best quality, obviously, but originally there was a giant exorcism ending. That was something that the studio demanded be tagged on. So like even as good as the movie is, it's not 
you know, what the original version of that story was meant to be. There is some stuff that's better about it, some stuff that's worse about it. It feels different in a lot of ways. And I'd be curious to kind of see what your thoughts are on that. But yeah, it, and Blatty himself was like, I want to direct this, which he's a pretty competent yeah. director, all things considered, right? It's a pretty damn good. And like, so I went into this thinking for some reason that this was the Halloween 3 of the Halloween franchise where it really didn't have anything to do with any of the story at all. And I was wrong. It is more of a sequel to the first Exorcist movie than Exorcist yes. 2 is to the first Exorcist movie. Yes. And that one actually has Linda Blair in it. Yeah. And I read that this movie ignores Exorcist 2 altogether and it only focuses on the Exorcist. And I didn't even realize there's a character in this movie it, until halfway through the movie. It hit me that one of the big characters from the Exorcist is in this movie in a character I was not expecting. And then it hit me when they introduce you to the person claiming to be the Gemini killer. And they do that great shift of actor as the guy is sure. telling you everything. And it turns into Brad Dorif and Brad Dorif delivers one of the creepiest horror villain scenes I've yeah. ever seen when he's talking to George C. Brad Scott Dorf fucking rocks and George C. Scott rocks in that movie too. He's great. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh, he, he goes full ham in this movie. Like he screams. He does the George C. Scott scream multiple times. Is everything all right in here, guys? We're fine. Go ahead, Lieutenant Temple. Why are you encouraging you this? Shut your mouth. That would be in the file. It is not in the file. It is not. You son of a bitch! I believe! My God! This movie legitimately has some pretty good scares. The thing that I really appreciate about it is it didn't even try to match the tone or even necessarily the themes of the first Exorcist. It just focused on what it wanted yeah. to do. And this movie wears a lot of hats. There's a lot of shit going on in this movie, juggling between characters and little mini stories here and there and it does it successfully and pretty competently and that was the other thing is i thought it, this was one of those horror movies that's so bad it's good slash cult movie no, status it's just legitimately a solid sequel yeah it's a legitimately like good horror movie heather have you seen this one i have not i've only just seen the exorcist i was homesick or something and i finally watched the exorcist i'm like this is either gonna be a really good idea or a really bad idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i mentioned a second ago skip to two is wild John Borman nonsense where like there's locust plagues and psychic battles between Richard Burton and Linda Blair and there's James Earl Jones as a voodoo priest in Africa like spitting cherries it's a fucking insano nut sequel but it has basically nothing to do with the original story Exorcist 3 legitimately good it's a legitimately good serial killer police procedural in the backdrop wake of the first Exorcist movie. It's solid. I would recommend checking it out for sure. Yeah. A lot of interesting things to say once again about religion. It's just good all around. It was one of those movies where I went in with high expectations and all of them were met. I really had a great time watching it. And there's some wild fucking scenes like that dream scene where he might be in purgatory yeah. at one point is fucking wild and amazing. Also, all with the statues change uh -huh. into like demonic statues and stuff. I dug all that. And then the final confrontation is over the top, but doesn't go too far somehow where it's totally cheesy. It kind of goes exactly where you think it's going to go, which is why it's a little bit of a like, OK, that's it. But it's not 
bad. That's the thing. The ending could have been yeah. very bad to that movie. And it, yes. even though it meets your expectations, it kind of ends how you expect. It's better than it being like a wild shit show ending, right? Yeah. My only minor gripe about this movie, and again, we'll explore this on a future episode in more detail. My only minor gripe is that it kind of ends suddenly. Sure. And yeah. that's after 110 minute runtime. And I didn't feel the runtime because normally, like when movies start going over an hour and a half, especially when they're horror, I kind of start losing interest. But this one kept my interest the entire time. It just, the ending was pretty abrupt. But otherwise, I loved it. I love this movie. Like, Going right up there on my favorite horror movies now, probably. Hell yeah. So that's The Exorcist 3. The second movie I watched, which kind of felt dull throughout watching it, but I've been thinking about it since watching it, and so I kind of have to bring it up. I watched 1988's English-language Spanish slasher movie, Edge of the Axe. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Six women, one man, all dead. of the axe. Gerald's a cool kid with a keen computer. Now that he's met Lillian, the lines of communication are definitely open. It's called Icarus. You can ask it anything you like. But the readout spells trouble. Wait a minute, what happened here? And murder is the mode. What shape is that body? Hamburger meat. A killer is loose, and the whole town's on edge. Edge of the Axe. This one is directed by Jose uh, Larraz, who has also gone on to say that Edge of the Axe is his least favorite and worst movie he's ever <laughs> directed. It came out in 1988, and boy howdy, does it feel like it came out eight years too late? Because uh-huh. this feels like it would have been way better as a, just a direct Halloween slash Friday the 13th clone ripoff. But it comes pretty late, so its impact is kind of nothing. Yeah. But this movie is such an interesting mess. That's what I do appreciate about it. It tries. It tries its little heart. And parts of the movie feel like it's made for TV. Parts of the movie, especially when it's just dialogue between characters indoors, straight up feels like an SOV movie, Aaron. Oh, yeah. The sound mixing in this movie is fucking wild. Some scenes, it's too loud. Other scenes, the music's too loud, but the dialogue is too soft. And then other scenes, the dialogue is just way too low, and you hear all the background shit. (laughs) So that's when it feels like an SOV movie. I love those moments where it's two people having a conversation, and the camera keeps cutting back and forth between them, but then you get varying levels of just white noise in the background. (laughs) And it just keeps switching between those two levels of white noise. That's always the best terrible shit. When did you last see her, man? About eight days ago. Marie West was a good worker. She moved in from Patterson a couple months ago. Sam, maybe you ought to find out where she worked in Patterson. Okay, boss. This movie is supposed to take place kind of just in the middle of Northern California, like in the mountains community. Mm -hmm. For a little while, I thought it was like an Appalachia. But no, it's Northern California, a community of Paddock County. And a killer who puts on just this plain white mask that's kind of reminiscent of Michael Myers just attacks mostly women with an axe and, and kills them. And while that's a basic slasher premise and it sounds like it could be like a little transgressive, I mean, this movie is gory. But it's surprisingly like tame in its gore and 
there's no nudity in it even though like the two main male protagonists are 80s tastic chauvinistic shitty and they say problematic stuff from time to time but there's never any moments of it i guess ickiness sure yeah the main thing i remember about this movie is there are some decisions laura's is like making some decisions yeah. there's at least shit that you can genuinely say you've never seen before like i can't think of another movie that kills off a character in a car wash <laughs> that's one yeah. thing i remember about that movie so that was one of the key things i was going to bring up is the beginning scene is a woman getting killed in a car wash and that's one of those weird thoughts i've always had when i ever i brought my car through car washes what if somebody was in this car with me right now they could totally get away with murder or what if they snuck in while i'm in the middle of this and that's exactly what this movie does so here's what's interesting about it besides the fact that it's a fucking spanish slasher movie but everyone's speaking english and most of it was shot in Big Bear Lake, California. It was also shot in Madrid. But there's a weird subplot with the main character and the main love interest involving computers. And this uh-huh. is like 80s idea of how computers operate. Yeah. Because they basically instant message each other through the movie. But it's done in a very analog way. And the computer reads yeah. the words in the computer AI voice anytime they like do it. But then they can also like, look up any local record they want to not even local or any national record like there's a database internet already on these yeah this is a gray box with green text on a screen by the way this is <laughs> straight out of alien yeah this is a like mid 80s computer here's where a movie brings up an interesting idea but then never addresses it or never explores it enough at one point the love interest is depressed and she's confessing to the main protagonist, I don't want our relationship to be through a computer or like, I don't want our relationship solely to be us messaging each other from our houses. I want it to be in person. That's an interesting idea because that's kind of something we can explore in modern times with the rise of social media. Like it takes away any personalization, blah, blah, blah. But then they never explore that idea anymore. (laughs) And then another thing that I thought was fascinating, and I see this time and time again, And it might just be like a convenient way for the slasher to get away with what they do throughout the movie. But it is interesting that time and time again in a lot of these movies, the police are shown to not only be incompetent, but be the problem. With the first (laughs) three kills here, they basically subtly threaten any of the witnesses into saying, this was an accident, right? We don't want this attention in our county, right? Hey, mortician, you're going to write in your autopsy report that this was a suicide, right? You don't want your job to be on the line. Stuff like that. And I was like, that's interesting too. But then they kind of halfway drop that through the movie when the slasher has piled enough bodies that the police are like, well, everyone knows now. So yeah. <laughs> there's a degree of incompetency on the level of blood rage, but unlike blood rage, none of the goofiness or humor or even transgressiveness is there. So it otherwise sometimes feels like a boring movie. The slasher, again, while they stack a respectable body count, I guess I think they kill like six or seven people. But otherwise, it still doesn't feel threatening in any way. It it never feels scary. I mean, there's a couple false jump scares and jump scares, but they're never terrible. They're never too scary. It's definitely a curio. It is a very niche-specific 80s thing. Yeah. And he also directed, it's called Deadly Manor, I want to say. And he had a weird career because he did some 
Paella Westerns, and he did some other, like, sex comedies and some, I think, just actual straight-up porn movies in the 70s. Arrow has put out both Edge of the Axe and, again, I think it's called Deadly Manor. I remember checking those out a while back and being like, okay, that was interesting enough. I'm glad I watched it, but didn't make the biggest impression on me. It's very much a completionist-only slasher. Yeah, and what the wild thing about this, though, the reason why I'm kind of baffled that it wasn't more exploitative, given the premise, is that I looked through some of his other horror movies and other movies he's shot throughout his uh, career, and a lot of them are exploitation horror movies. Like, there's one called Black Candles from 1982. Rest in Pieces was the year prior, and people were saying that that one's a little more transgressive. The House That Vanished was one he did back in the seventy early 70s, and that's an exploitation horror movie. Why was this movie so tame? Maybe like he was trying to reach a greater audience or have some kind of theatrical appeal in the U.S. or otherwise? I would bet, too, since it's a movie that's set in the U.S. and he was probably get, trying to get into U.S. markets, they probably made some very strategic cuts to like make sure that it could actually get out into the U.S. market without running into problems with the ratings. I mean, that... That's my guess. Yeah. I don't know. For a movie mostly about a killer murdering women with an axe to the point where like at one point someone even says her body looks like mincemeat. You never really see any of that. The closest you get is one of the victims get their fingers chopped off and that's the goriest woman. Otherwise, most of the hits are like bodily hits and then they're just dead. But there's never like any removal of limbs or anything like that. You see a severed head in a lake, but that person's already dead, and you have no idea how they were fucking killed. They're killed off screen, so there's also wild cuts that create plot holes through this movie. It really is a completionist movie, but if you are a slasher horror completionist, it's definitely worth your time just to watch an oddity that at least has something to say about the way the police operate and computers in the late 80s, I guess. I don't know. And then it has, of course, the twist of who the killer is. It tries so hard. It tried so hard to like be original, and I <laughs> yeah. appreciated it. I appreciate who it turns out to be, because it is not one you see a lot, but it still is just like, oh my god. It's like a hat on a hat on a hat of you guys throwing red herrings out, and you think it's this person or that person. Literally, at one point, the priest is like, I could get back to the church on foot. I'll run through the woods. Like the next scene is going to the final confrontation. So they throw in that last red herring of could it be the priest, even though he like was barely in this movie. But it's more fun to even talk about this movie than actually watching it. But it, you know, maybe go check it out if yeah. you have an hour and a half to kill. It's on Tubi for free. All right, cool. Well, um, I've got two new movies that I want to bring up real quick. I was kind of mixed on both of them, but I think they are still maybe worth checking out if you want to look at something that's at least an interesting premise. And again, new, right? So the first one is Night Swim. (laughs) Marco. Hello. (laughs) Marco. I I hear you. I can hear you. Why aren't you saying anything? Ronan, you're dead. Marco. 
was just recently released. In my opinion, the wrong fucking time of the year, because if you're going to release a movie about a haunted pool, essentially, the dead of fucking winter is maybe the wrong time to release that movie. <laughs> yeah. Especially where in the middle of the movie they have a 4th of July party at said pool. This was written and directed by Bryce McGuire. This is, I believe, his debut feature. He's done several shorts. This was put out by Blumhouse and Universal. So this was an actual studio big release. But I feel like despite it getting a theatrical release, again, it got released in fucking January. I feel like it kind of got dumped. It just seems like an odd time to release this movie. But for those of you who hadn't seen the trailer recently and other movies that you've watched, it's a family that moves into a new house that has a pool. Turns out pool is haunted. You know, that's the general premise. There are some interesting details. Simple yet effective. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure that's probably on the poster too. Dot, dot, dot. Simple, dot, dot, dot. And effective, dot, <laughs> dot, dot. RogerEbert.com. <laughs> anyway, there are some interesting notions there. Like, this is a natural spring pool. So it is like being fed from a natural spring that ties deep in underneath this town, etc. There's potential for that to be some weirdness, and it never quite really fully utilizes that. There's the idea of the pool being kind of this fucking purgatory where all the people that had died in the pool are kind of also trapped in the pool, but it really only goes as far as kind of recreating the first scene of Stephen King's It with somebody talking to somebody else through the weird pool drain, and that in and of itself is pretty creepy. I think literally anybody that's ever swum in a pool has looked in one of those gross little catches and you're just like, oh, what's in there? What fucking creepy shit? I don't want to put my hand in there. Right? <laughs> We've all done that. That's part of the reason why this premise could have been so much fucking fun. And just the idea of, again, night swim and you're in a pool at night and inherently there's no danger there, but you're always like, but yeah, like, what if there's a fucking shark in the pool I and I say, can't see it, right? Yeah. When he said something about the poster, I was like, oh shit, yeah, I've seen that. And it's like, yeah, that was exactly my childhood fear every time I got into a pool is, I know there's nothing in this pool, but what if there's something in but this pool? But what if there is? Exactly. What if the deep end of this pool actually goes really fucking deep, yeah. right? And something drags me down there and it's dark and I can't see, right? That is a fear. I have thalassophobia. That is like the technical term for I don't want to be in fucking dark water. That's just like a general weird baseline phobia that most people have. I legitimately think it's just part of the human psyche is, hey, you see that really dark fucking water that you can't see? Don't go in there. That's just part of our ingrained animal nature is don't go near that water. There could be an alligator that's going to fucking chomp on you, right? It's like, what is it, tryptophobia or whatever is the fear of all the, like, oddly shaped holes? Yeah, but, like, that's just gross. <laughs> that's just, like, a weird thing. Yeah, so that's actually an evolutionary trait because hornet's nests and things like that, we feel uncomfortable staring at stuff like that. Uh, of course because, you would know this because you fucking hate hornets. Yeah, okay. Because okay. I, I hate hornets because insects especially that can harm us usually live in things that look like that. So just, like, tryptophobia it sounds like it's just an evolutionary trait to be afraid of water you can't sure. see the bottom of so like this movie's premise really really could have worked just as a shout out i guess i've mentioned on the show before the scene in alligator where little kids at the birthday party are like fuck it we're gonna go outside and fuck around the pool and they push that kid into the pool and then the mom switches the pool lights on the instant they kick the kid off the edge of the diving board and you just see the fucking alligator like bah, right there at the bottom. 
scared me to fucking death when I was a kid. Anyway, the cast is really good. So it's Wyatt Russell, Kurt Russell's son, who was an overlord, was on the Marvel show Falcon Winter Soldier, yeah. and is currently on the Apple show Monarch, which I've talked about on the show, which is the Godzilla universe show right now. And then Carrie Condon, who was literally in fucking Banshees of Inisherin last year. It was like a wild whiplash to go from that to this. Wyatt Russell's like a former baseball player who now has this degenerative nerve disease that keeps him from playing. And then kind of the deal is, oh, the pool hooks up to this natural spring and supposedly the waters had healing properties. So he's being fucking healed from this degenerative disease by the pool. But of course, it's making him evil. So it just really (laughs) kind of turns into this possessed dad movie, ultimately. And that's less interesting in so many ways and has been done before in so many different variations, right? So it's just not that terribly interesting for what the premise promises. but. I think the movie's well-directed. It looks good. It's really slick. I think the camera work is all great. The like vibe and the mood is great. I think they shot at a place that's very grounded and believable. It feels very much like a middle-class neighborhood, middle-class house. You know, I don't know. I think it was well-made. I just don't think it fully lives up to the potential of that premise. You know, maybe Bryce McGuire needed another eye on this script to give it another pass. I don't know, but I just kept waiting for some crazy poltergeist to shit caverns underneath the fucking town. And there was like a crazy cult or some supernatural force that's connected into all this shit. And it just never really fully goes where it could potentially go. So anyway, yeah, night swim fun. If you have nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon, you know, it's a good, entry horror movie if you have kids because there's not really anything transgressive in this movie at all so like great if you're 11 years old you want to watch a movie that's going to like kind of fuck you up about swimming in a pool second movie i want to talk about dark harvest you really think that's real i saw it it's real you saw it (laughs) did you kill it then let's go kill him. You should do it. You know I'm not allowed. Just because your brother won the run last year? I got an idea. If that thing isn't dead by midnight, this whole town is going straight to hell! I want to go home. I want to go home. You think you're special. Why are you doing this? If you're born in this town, you're cursed. I'm ending this. Tonight. It ain't over. I brought this up a long time ago when I heard that it was in production. Is that one based off a book? Yes. Okay, I haven't read it yet. And so this is a book that you've probably seen. It is a book by Norman Partridge. I believe it won a Hugo Award. So it's a well-regarded book, and I'm curious to like see what the book looks like compared to the movie, because this is another one where I thought the premise was super interesting, but it felt like there was an ending that just got completely lopped off and it just kind of stops where you think it should kind of keep going. So this is directed by David Slade, who did Hard Candy and 30 Days of Night and lots of horror TV shit. 
Um, this was written by Michael Gilio, based again on the novel by Norman Partridge. It's a Midwest corn farming ag town in the 1960s. They had this weird kind of yearly ritual where three days before Halloween, they lock up all the teenage boys in the town. And for three days, no contact, no food. They keep them completely isolated. Then on Halloween night, they turn all these fucking rabid teenage boys out into the town to just cause chaos, get all their pent up anger out. They are all given weapons and masks. Is this the purge? The entire <laughs> premise is there is a fucking pumpkin head fire breathing demon called Sawtooth Jack that emerges from the cornfield every Halloween night and beelines to the fucking church at the center of town. And so these boys have to stop him from getting to the church and whichever boy kills the fucking pumpkin head demon his family gets set up. They get a new house. They get a new car. He gets like a new Corvette. They get a huge check. So that family gets set the fuck up. So it's a mix of Purge. It's a mix of maybe Children of the Corn a little bit. It's a little bit of everything. The episode from um, Gravity Falls, <laughs> Summerween yeah. episode. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. The other kicker of the plot is... The boy who kills the monster then gets to hop in his fucking Corvette and leave the town. Because that's the other thing. Nobody's allowed to leave this town. There's some other wrinkles. That's the premise. That is the first five fucking minutes. We're going to set it up premise. The main character, you find out that, oh, his older brother is the one who like won in air quotes last year. He's the one that killed the monster and he has left town. And so now the younger brother's like, fuck, I'm going to win too because I want to get out of this shitty town. And there's a lot of pushback because people are like, no, fuck you. Your family already win. Your family's already rich and has like a new house and everything. Like, what about our poor family? There is also a girl in the town. She is very much like, yeah, fuck this. Why do the boys get to do this shit and we don't? I want to leave this town too. This is bullshit. Yeah, I'm going to participate. And they kind of fall for each other, of course. And then, of course, there's more going on. All the parents know kind of the deeper end of what's happening. There's like a weird farmers union association that's kind of running this whole thing and funds the whole ritual every year. And that's the other thing is if we kill the fucking monster, like there will be another year of prosperity. So we have to do it for the sake of everybody in the town. Really fucking cool premise. I think the movie might be a little bit overly slick. It feels very much like you're watching 2007 butt metal music video <laughs> where like everything is backlit and there's you know stuff floating through the air and they're in a cornfield and there's fires right and there's shaky cam constantly it feels like you're looking at a music video when it's set in the 60s and so it should feel maybe a little more throwbacky in terms of its vibe in the same way and Derek and I, we discussed this on our True Detective episode. There are a lot of anachronistic needle drops in this, too, that make no fucking sense. Like, they're playing The Damned in this movie that's supposed to be set in 1963, right? I wonder if any of that is in the book, like, cultural references to the time. Probably not. That's what I'm saying. I yeah. think this is all stylistic shit, and it's like, wait, what are you doing? That's what I mean, And yeah. this is why it doesn't quite work. 
And there's more pointed references, like the main kids are all wearing the, like, Crimson Skull mask, which is the Misfits skull. So it, it like, knows what it's doing in that regard, but then there's, like, just weird decisions, like, why is there Misfits music in this, right? That's, I don't know. Wait, so the movie takes place in the 60s, though, right? That's what I'm saying, yes. What? Okay. So Crimson Skull is the villain from an old serial series in, like, the 1930s. Oh, 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 oh okay, the yeah. The Misfits just all adopted right. that skull image for, like, all their marketing. Right, right, that's what you meant. Okay. But it's still just a weird reference, I guess. Yeah, I get what you mean, but also to kind of go back to the stylistic tone of you saying it's like 2007 it also sounds like stylistically it's a mid-aughts Lionsgate movie that's what I'm saying it's like the entire thing should be set in 2007 but it's actually set in the 60s which tonally stylistically none of it makes any sense right they shot the thing in middle of nowhere Canada like Saskatchewan or something the town feels realistic the town feels legitimate to the time the costuming's a little theatrical and stagey, and the town's way too clean. It doesn't feel lived in. It feels like, oh, we made a fucking giant movie set, right? The cast is half and half, too. Casey Likes, the main kid, I think is pretty solid. Jeremy Davies and Elizabeth Reeser from Haunting of Hill House play the parents, and they're both good. Emery Crutchfield, and this is how I found out about this movie originally, she's the main actress in this movie that's also like, I want to get the fuck out of this town. She's in season four of Fargo, and she is fucking awesome in that show. She is also from New Orleans. Nice. So shout out to our home area. She is an actress that I want to see whatever she does going forward. She's very good in the movie. And the other thing I'll say is, too, the fucking Sawtooth Jack Pumpkinhead Demon Monster fucking rocks. It's an actual skinny contortionist motherfucker. In makeup, it's all practical. Oh, awesome. Crazy pumpkin head mask thing. I was worried with you saying how sty- it is stylistically that they would just CGI the shit out of it. There is CGI augmentation to it. Like, obviously, when he goes full Ghost Rider and flames shit, it's, you know, CGI. But it's like an actual actor in makeup. And that looks Hell yeah. stellar. It's interesting, too, because there's clearly themes of, hey, teenagers, maybe don't trust all the dumb shit that adults tell you. <laughs> maybe your parents don't <laughs> always have shit right. Maybe you should trust your gut instincts a little bit. Hey, maybe authority figures don't always have your best interest in mind. There's a lot of that, which any teenager needs a good healthy dose of that. So I stand behind that. There is definitely some of the female character who is black is like, yo, people in this town treat me fucking differently, and that's shitty, and I want to, like, get away from this. You know, obviously, down with that messaging for the young folk uh, reading the book and watching this movie. And I think my last issue with it is just, there's no mystery. Where it ultimately goes and what the final kind of revelation is, is exactly what you expect. There's no mystery there. It also kind of ends right before you would expect there to be, another final revelation or twist or fold to the story. It feels like there's 15 minutes of the actual ending that just got cut off. So I'm curious what the deal is with that, and which is why I'm kind of curious to check out the book. So I'll report back, maybe. I believe the book is kind of a YA-aimed book, um, which means I can probably blast through it in two days. So I'm going to check that out and report back. But yeah, this is Dark Harvest. Again, is it perfect? No. Is it fun? Sure. 
is the ending frustrating? Sure. Is the rest of the movie worth watching and enjoyable and at least fun and different? Yeah, definitely check it out. I would recommend it. The premise alone sounds interesting. So yeah, those are my two recommends. I've gone on long enough. So let's get into discussing this movie because there's going to be a lot to talk there. Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby, co-starring John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Morris Evans, and Ralph Bellamy, written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski, from the best-selling novel by Ira Levin, suggested for mature audiences. We are, like usual, going to kick it over to Heather. Uh, our guest to discuss why you picked this movie and your initial reaction to this movie and and what you felt on maybe this rewatch Aaron and I will give our initial reactions and we're not going to get into spoilers of the story or anything heavy about the movie itself immediately like you usually do after that listeners we're going to talk about Roman Polanski first and all the controversy because that disclaimer needs to be said before we really give this movie a proper analysis I, I guess yeah That's part of the reason, like I joked about earlier, while we've been kind of a little bit cold feet, wishy-washy on dipping into this movie, unless we had a specific guest that wanted to cover this, and we could have a structured conversation around it. So, yeah. Yeah, so with that, Heather, why'd you chose Rosemary's Baby for your first main show episode? What about this movie? speaks to you and what are your thoughts on it initially yeah so this is one of my favorite horror movies it is one of the very few horror movies that i had actually already seen before i started listening to your show as i mentioned on the patreon episode most of what i've watched in the last few years has been because of listening to you guys either directly or indirectly hell yeah there were very few horror movies that i had seen before because i have just always been quite a wimp one of my coworkers really, really likes horror. And so I know she had recommended it to me. And of course, I was aware of it. I just had never decided to watch it. And I'm trying to remember, I think the first time I watched it was actually when I was home on maternity leave, which is either the best or the worst time to watch it. (laughs) But I think it was right after I'd had my daughter. I think probably the only worst time would have been while I was still pregnant. I know she had specifically told me not to watch that movie Mother while I was pregnant. And I still have not watched it because I know enough about it to know it's not my kind of movie. (laughs) Yeah. We've talked shit about Mother before, too, on our our, our show. One of the reasons your show appeals to me is I'm the person who reads the Wikipedia article instead of watching the movie (laughs) so yes i I know what happens and that one's not for me but back to rosemary's baby it really knows what it's doing when it preys on that anxiety during pregnancy Mm -hmm. that out of control feeling i've had two children and especially with my first there's a lot of anxiety with that first pregnancy because you're experiencing a lot of things you've never experienced before As Dr. Saperstein says, every woman in every pregnancy is different. That is one thing that is very true. So it's hard to know what's normal and what's not. And there are so many things that could be normal. I developed nosebleeds when I was pregnant. I'd never had a nosebleed in my life. And suddenly I was spontaneously getting nosebleeds all the time. I became very anxious. We had just adopted our dog about a month before I got pregnant. And I became convinced that someone was going to try to steal Balder. And I'm like, Joe, we need to put locks on all of our gates on the fence because someone is going to break into our backyard and steal the dog. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just the weird things that you focus on and the, the way it changes your personality. 
with both pregnancies, actually, I became very mean. I'm a very nice person, and I became very mean through both pregnancies. <laughs> and so, yeah, all of that feels very authentic and feels very visceral uh, when you watch it, especially if you have experienced it because suddenly you're having to put your trust in a lot of other people. And it's like, well, what if I really can't trust them? Uh-huh. Yeah. Like you said, there's also, too, just that general, oh, God, am, am I getting the right information? Yeah. What am I supposed to be doing? Why won't anybody tell me what I need to be doing or what to be expecting? Or why does nobody have the answers that I need? That general anxiety mm-hmm. of, cool, I'm like the gajillionth person in the face of the earth to be pregnant or to be diabetic or to have cancer or to have any other kind of mm-hmm. illness and it's still just i don't know shrug it's always different we'll find yeah. out let's see and it's just like why the fuck have we not figured this out by now mm-hmm. you know like why don't we have actual answers to have this <laughs> yeah i thought about anytime they read the side effects off of a medication while i was watching this movie <laughs> you could have nausea vomiting headaches blah 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 it's like oh every generalized symptom for everything else you could also have but yeah just that general not knowing who to listen to, who to trust. Yeah, all mm-hmm. that for sure. Yeah, a lot of gaslighting yeah. in this. That was my biggest thing was not just gaslighting a person, but gaslighting a pregnant woman and almost still having that old boomer, like the wife is meant to have children and keep the house in order and the man is supposed to work kind of mentality to it. And it seemed like the movie was really kind of attacking that and poking fun at it, but also just showing how fucked up it is like the scariest stuff to me isn't necessarily the more religious angle or the threat of it or whether or not that's real it's yeah. more just her like kind of slowly going insane during the day but then also having these moments of like heightened anxiety like when a pushy neighbor yeah. wants to keep coming over for dinner or like your husband comes home and he's stressed out from work and he kind of snaps yeah. at you and it ruins your whole mood and you had this whole idea of how the night was going to go and then the yeah. instant he walks in within five seconds it's ruined those are the kind of things that i think this movie captures so well that really spoke to me it wasn't cringe humor or cringe horror it was just more uncomfortable and it was realistically mm-hmm. uncomfortable and then you just happen to have in the backdrop of this the possibility of is this real is this not real Am I being gaslit or is this just a series of unfortunate events and also my hormones are raging because my body's changing with this pregnancy? Yeah. If all the crazy shit is real, what are the ramifications to that as Mm -hmm. well? Um, There's constantly that just what is going on kind of mentality there. Derek and I grew up in the Bible Belt. Derek is raised Catholic. I was raised non-dom. But very much that weird attitude of you don't need to watch devil stuff. Devil <laughs> movies are bad, you know, and specific things like Rosemary's Baby be talking about as that's one of the most evil movies ever made because it's about the devil. And despite that general vibe always being around, it is funny, like the stuff that my mom did let us watch here and there. This was not necessarily one of those movies. I also got the impression that this movie was much more lurid and sexual and you know maybe like more adult and in a way it is but it's not adult in the ways that you would think a movie like this would be adult it's adult in the ways like Derek said it's relationship dynamic shit that you don't think about until you're actually in a serious relationship and you experience those kind of awkward scenarios but this was a movie that very much felt taboo in a lot of ways I remember when I saw this in high school and just being like 
this movie is a fucking delight. It's genuinely funny. Mm -hmm. It's very, very relatable in terms of the premise, in terms of the characters' journeys. You've seen shit like this in real life. You know people like this in real life. All of that just felt very grounded and relatable in a way that made the more heightened, ridiculous horror shit work mechanically in a better way for the movie. And fucking Ruth Gordon in this movie, as <laughs> many cast of it, is still like one of my favorite movie characters oh, she's ever. She's fucking hilarious in this. Yeah. So all that said, yeah, let's give the big disclaimer here. Like we've mentioned already, this is a movie that because it is made by a filmmaker who has been not just recently canceled, excommunicated, whatever, like this is made by a guy who has been in many ways, kicked off the fucking planet and into a black hole, kind of canceled in some ways. In some ways, frustratingly, oh yeah, by the way, he still lives a perfectly fine life in Europe and has been still working for all this time. And still has all the respect of his co-workers. Yeah, uh-huh. So, all of this said, uh, the movie is directed by Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski is an incredibly complicated person who suffered a lot of trauma throughout his life, a lot of crazy cataclysmic trauma that even one event would throw some people off for fucking ever and never come back from that. And uh, he went through a lot. He also did some really fucking terrible things. The primary instance that we are aware of being that he drugged and raped a 13-year-old girl in the 1970s at Jack Nicholson's house when nobody was there and he was doing an, an air quotes photo shoot. Yeah, super sketchy shit. So Jack Nicholson wasn't there because the only thing I had read was that it was at Jack Nicholson's poolside. We don't have to get into the specific specifics, but no, he was not there. It was at his okay. house. That was the only thing I was I wanted to know. Yeah, Angelica Houston, who Jack Nicholson was dating at the time, got back to the house kind of in the middle of all this and was like, yo, what the fuck is going on? That's where things kind of got broken up, apparently. Ultimately, he fled justice. He bounced and went to Europe and has escaped justice and has never really actually seen a full fucking day in prison ever and is still technically a fugitive of the law in the U.S. because we can't fucking extradite him. And he has continued to live a perfectly normal life and have a family and continues to work and make movies and lots of famous people throughout Hollywood in front of him behind the camera have continued to work with him and speak highly of him. If you ever want to just like feel bad about everything that you like, just, you know, pull up the list of people who like recently a few years ago signed to be like, yeah, we should just forgive him, scratch his crimes and let him come back to the US if he feels like it. That list will make you throw up. But it's one of those things where like it's that fucking question we talk about all the goddamn time now, which is, what do we do with complicated art like this? Do we still accept it? Do we chuck it out the window? Do we cancel the whole fucking thing despite him? It's very much that conversation. I don't mean to reverse your talk, but for a little more context, after he was arrested, he entered a plea bargain. Just to give a little more context to this idea of just why Roman Polanski, especially at that time, what he did was fucked up because in that plea bargain, he still pled guilty to the charge of unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor, having sex with a 13-year-old. Supposedly, during that plea bargain, they were going to dismiss the other charges, which were like five out of six of them that were far worse. It was basically just going to be a slap on the wrist. 
but the judge was kind of mouthing off to his buddies that he was exactly. going like, to throw the book at him and give him 50 years, so Polanski bounced. Yeah, so that night he fled the country, and there's something with France being a French citizen. There's no extradition. Yeah, no extradition. They can choose not to extradite, which every time that there has been a request, Francis said no. Yes, yeah. What a lot of Hollywood points to is, oh, that judge was just looking for fame by throwing the book at Roman Polanski. That judge went back on his word. He agreed to the plea bargain, but then when the sentencing was going to happen, he was going to bury Polanski, and that's why he was unfairly judged and, and all that. I don't give a shit what that judge was going to do. The dude never saw any type of justice for having sex with a 13-year-old. You know, we could say, like, oh, legally even, alleged rape, but he still had sex with a 13-year-old and he was an adult man. Drugged a 13-year-old, raped a 13 It's bad. It's bad. Yeah. There's no confusing, oh, well, she looked fucking older and she said, none of that. There's no misread of signals no there was no any of that this was a knowing thing it has also been discussed since that this girl is not the only person that he pulled this kind of shit with. yeah like, there have been other victims that have come forward like this was a pattern yeah a lot of actresses and not even actresses just other people have alleged that he did the same thing to them when they were also minors i don't know what the man thinks now but if you're thinking that after this happened and he fled the country he felt any remorse in 1979, he gave an interview in which he basically said, everybody wants to fuck young girls. And I'm sorry, Roman Polanski, no, not everyone wants to fuck yeah. young girls, you sicko. And a lot of people chalked it up to like, oh, well, it's just a different culture in fucking Europe and there's different moral norms and what's acceptable and what's not and all this, that and the other. And like, okay, fuck off with that argument. He and other people in Hollywood have pointed out that the woman, the 13-year-old girl, has since now, even as recently as 2023, has met with Polanski and said she forgives him. And she thinks that there was never any issue and it was fine and that it was the judge, blah, 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 whatever. I don't care. None of that excuses what the man did and doesn't excuse all the other allegations that will unfortunately never get their day and be brought out to the light. And you know what? It is fine. And frankly, it is incredibly fucking adult and brave for a victim to come forward and be like, I forgive this person. But at the same time, it's still an issue of he was never held accountable. Yeah, I agree. Should we just let that slide? No, right? Anyway, I don't want to get into the details of that because A, it's real gross and fucking icky and I don't want to talk about it, but it's definitely something that, you know, if you're on the fence about, oh yeah, are these guys just making a big deal of this? It's not that big of a deal, whatever. Go read it. There's a whole section on his Wikipedia page, and there's a whole separate Wikipedia page about it. There are multiple documentaries about all this nonsense. So, like, again, to circle back around, let's get out of this. By the way, he's had a lot of legal issues <laughs> in general again over the years. But yeah. Derek and I have discussed, <laughs> you know, over time, you know, do we want to cover Jeepers Creepers? Because that's another movie that, guess what? Made by a pedophile. That's not a movie that I have any particular fondness for i just don't think it's a good I movie that's why that movie like is culturally <laughs> significant in the way that something like rosemary's baby is to like the 60s and the women's lib movement and really examining the rise of fundamentalism and satanic panic throughout the 70s and 80s there's a lot to talk about with rosemary's baby in terms of being an important piece of capital a art in cinema 
despite Roman Polanski being the director and the like writer of the screenplay, hundreds of other people contributed to this movie. So it's kind of one of those things like, should we fucking bury this 20 feet under a volcano despite all the other work that all these other people put in, right? That's a complicated discussion and everybody has different opinions on that. You know, I feel like this is something that it's relatively easy in this instance, I think, to separate the art from the artist in regards to Polanski because he didn't write the story. Ira Levin did. Ira Levin wrote this novel. Polanski very, very faithfully adapted it because he had never adapted a screenplay. So he didn't understand that, oh, you can change this however you want. So he just very like word for word adapted the screenplay, right? Oh, yeah. There are lines pulled right from the book. Oh, yeah. So it's not like he put a spin to this, right? Again, everybody's mileage may vary. You know, if this is something where like you just decide after hearing us talk about this, like, oh, you know what? I don't ever want to watch this movie and I don't want to listen to the rest of this conversation. You know what? That's fine. Turn it off. Yeah, totally fair. Yeah. But this is one of those things where, like, I feel like it's easier in this instance to separate the art from the artist because as much as he did have an impact on the final product of this movie, there are, again, hundreds of other people that contributed to this. It doesn't feel the same as watching a Woody Allen movie, where Woody Allen has a lot of authorial voice in his stories, and there is usually always a character that is a stand-in for him. And a lot of his movies also conveniently just center around a grown man having the hots for a way too young, questionably of age girl trying to make, oh, but that's all, it's it's fine. It's whatever. That's natural. That's normal. My guy, you're raising your flag a little bit too hard here. And that's weird. (sighs) I don't know. I've spoken enough. Yeah. Heather, what are your thoughts on this? How do you feel about this whole side of this? Do you want to talk about how you try to do this because again you being a librarian this is also a thing with you know novels and books and literature it always has been how do you separate the controversial shit from the stuff that's actually culturally important still Mm -hmm. you know like how do you work through that i guess yeah with books it's a little bit easier for me to decide how to separate because it is typically just the one person's vision yeah. So, yeah, there are a lot of historical authors that are really complicated, but they're also dead, so they're not still profiting. So it's like, okay, let's talk about the controversy, but I don't have to worry about them profiting. Where if you have an issue like Harry Potter, she's still alive, making her views known, still profiting. You know, yeah. I, I will show any kid who asks for them where those books are. I personally will not be promoting them. Frankly, they don't need my promotion anyway. Yeah. As you say, with something like a movie, it's a lot harder because there are so many other people involved. And so, again, it kind of comes down to, uh-huh. well, this is a fairly old movie. It's been around for a long time and it's culturally relevant. And so I feel like you do have to put a little bit more thought when it's dealing with a movie. If he were to put out something newer, I'd probably ignore it. Yeah, that's that's a good way of doing it. It's easy now to like just completely ignore his output. Yeah. Yeah. Seemingly the only people that give a shit about his movies anymore are like the fucking 35 old rich white Parisian (laughs) men who like run the Cesar Awards because who the fuck watches his movies nowadays, I guess. Yeah, I guess I didn't even realize he was still putting stuff out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he recently was celebrated at that award show. Yeah, no shit. He was nominated for Best Director and then won over Celine Sciamma, who arguably put out the better movie. And she has been, like, very politically outspoken. She's a fucking excellent director making excellent fucking work. But she has also not been quiet about the bullshit that she's had to deal with in the industry. 
she and all of her fucking cast and crew walked out of the awards show, like made a big yeah. deal of fucking getting up and walking out when he his name was called. Yeah. This motherfucker is still working and very much still widely praised throughout Europe. A lot of people in the American industry still fucking love him and work with him. It's Buck Wild. A lot of stars and directors you would yeah. like to, uh-huh. unfortunately. I mean, he got a standing ovation at the Oscars. I don't remember what year, but it was fairly recently. It was the year that he won for The Pianist oh, okay. and yeah. wasn't fucking there to accept his award. Yeah, he got a standing O yeah. at the Oscars for that. What the fuck? So to that point, That was the big thing, the big struggle for me watching this movie, after watching this movie, before watching this movie, because this movie is really damn good, Mm -hmm. and I see why it's had such a lasting impact, but I just argued with myself, I guess, on, first off, should we even be arguing about the morality of the movie, or should we be just focusing on, on the movie itself, but is the morality of the movie affected by the author or the creator or director in this case? when the director goes on to do heinous shit. The reason why I like struggled with this, because yes, he's still alive, A. B, there are other creatives that I have cut off completely for the bullshit they've done, and they've created great works in music or otherwise, and I can't square it in my head. Even if their album is a more modern cultural touchstone, I still refuse to listen to it. Well, case in point, sorry to interrupt. You know what? I was never fucking a Harry Potter kid. Yeah. So when Joe starts talking all of her fucking turf nonsense, it was easy for me to be like, cool, that's done. Right. But my wife, that was her fucking shit growing up was Harry Potter. Yeah. So it was a lot of kids. For my wife, it was fucking Pokemon, (laughs) dogs, and Harry Potter. Right. And that was a major part of her childhood. And it's been like a fucking aggravating and rough couple of years with her kind of coming to terms with all that and deciding for herself. Do I want to fucking partake in this anymore at all? Do I support this anymore? How do I feel about it? Do I throw all this shit away? Like, she's gone pretty hard trying to figure out what the fuck about that entire situation. So, like, it can be weird and tough depending on how into something you are, for sure. Especially if that thing is so important to you and maybe it was a coping mechanism. Maybe you were a kid who did get along as well with other kids and that was a good coping mechanism. Or it's what introduced you to reading. It's what introduced you to fantasy. And for the story itself, you still feel this passion for it. But yeah, that's the real thing to struggle with. And I think what I ultimately have landed on is if you want to separate the art from the artist, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, yeah, I love Harry Potter. I know J.K. Rowling is a monster and says the most turf-ass shit ever. I don't support any of that, but I, I do love Harry Potter great i'm not gonna judge you for that or or if someone's like i'm not gonna watch rosemary's baby because fuck roman polanski hey more power to you i also think fuck roman polanski and i could say that rosemary's baby is a good movie but fuck that guy like i mean even in our hellscape society it's almost impossible to avoid consuming pop culture otherwise or even just like eating without (laughs) it being on the blood of some innocent person being on the hands of the people who make it this is my like put on my fucking Che Guevara t-shirt moment. There's no fucking ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Like we joke about that being the thing, but there's not a single fucking decision that you can make throughout the day where somewhere down the line, like somebody isn't getting fucked somehow or another. I think it unfortunately extends to entertainment and pop culture too, especially when you're watching, reading, et cetera, stuff that's older. 
Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft was a racist. <laughs> yeah, like he was racist as shit. It's come up a couple times on the show, yeah. right? But people still praise the work itself, but recognize that he was kind of shitty yeah. in his views. I think, too, you know, it's one of those things where, like, with Lovecraft, most of his work is public domain. He's dead. And so for people that are adapting his work now, you know, it's an interesting opportunity to take what works about his stuff, update it, modernize it, take the icky shit out, and reinterpret it, adapt it, right? Which is what you're supposed to do when you take another work and translate it to another medium. But, you know, with something like this, this is one of the few instances where, like I said, I have, throughout my waking adult life, have struggled with how do I feel about this movie? Because the other big wrinkle with Roman Polanski specifically is knowing that, holy shit, he survived the Holocaust, his fucking parents were taken to camps, his pregnant wife was one of the victims of the fucking Charles Manson cult, buck wild shit. And so there's always that weird baked in degree of sympathy for, holy shit, this dude has lived through some terrible heinous shit and like has been a victim himself. You can't use that to excuse him also turning around and doing terrible shit as well, which is what makes this whole thing even more complicated. Yeah. Anyway, that's the big disclaimer. We've talked about it enough. I I would say one last thing to throw in there. And granted, this is straight from the book. Heather, you can, I wanted to throw it to you first because I'm interested in, since you had just recently read the book too. I did too. Yeah. With all that said, also listeners, if you do decide that you're going to watch this movie, again, if you decide not to, if you decide to cut off the episode here too for our show, great. More power to you. Understandable. If you're sticking with us and you want to go watch a movie, one more disclaimer. There is a rape scene in this movie yeah. directly from the book mm-hmm. as well. It's lifted from that. But just know that in this Roman Polanski movie, there is also like a rape scene and it's kind of fucking uncomfortable. Not even just from like a supernatural point of view, but also kind of when she confronts her husband about it mm-hmm. in the morning. He's just like, oh, yeah, you were you were unconscious. So I had sex with you while you're unconscious. Consent matters, even in a married sexually active relationship. You still need fucking consent. Yeah, but it's disturbing how many states for a really long time did not recognize marital rape. And uh-huh. In fact, I think one of the last states just finally recognized it recently, and I can't yeah. remember which one it was now. Yeah. yeah. I don't think any state officially recognized marital rape as even being a thing until like the fucking mid-90s. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, right? Yeah. For your horror newbies out there, this is a classic horror movie. It's super culturally it's really good the horror you're gonna find in it isn't jump scares despite the satanic background of it it is more just dread and more seeing the 60s through the eyes of a homemaker wife who is also trying to get through a pregnancy and it's really uncomfortable because she deals with abuse mentally physically a lot of verbal abuse from her husband throughout the movie and just other people taking advantage of her. Loss of control is a big thing in this. So those are the kind of horrors you're dealing with through this movie. Yeah. So let's kind of start there. Yeah. So we've already kind of touched on the idea of bodily maternal fear, not knowing what is and is not correct, not knowing who to trust or who to listen to. Also, this movie is over two hours long, but (laughs) the length is not too noticeable because it's pretty engaging throughout. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in there. Another thing that kind of goes hand in hand with all of that that we've kind of already touched on is just, and this is becoming more and more of a theme, which is why this movie is very interestingly still relevant, is just the idea of corrupt 
medicine and mm-hmm. the entire fucking medical care system being so inherently flawed and doctors being very vulnerable to big pharma and you know, the entire opioid epidemic being kind of rooted in this entire idea just so many hospitals turning into for-profit hospitals which means they have an incentive to like not fully treat and heal as much as just deal with symptoms and keep you coming back and or fucking people over from an insurance side of things and overcharging and you know people literally going bankrupt because oops i got fucking leukemia and then just the idea too that all that real life shit that's actually a legitimate problem in this country (laughs) has also been completely co-opted by fucking loonies in the last bunch of years that are further complicating all these real issues right All that fucking crazy paranoia and all the nonsense revolving around COVID and whether or not COVID's even fucking real and the vaccine and God, they're putting fucking microchips in us. Oh, my God, (laughs) the devil is going to activate 5G and it's going to turn us all into the slaves of Satan, right? It's wild how much of that fucking satanic panic, paranoia and distrust and fear of the fucking medical system. And what doctor you're talking to and what the doctor is telling you to do and all this is still totally fucking relevant today. It's buck wild to me. Heather, like, did you also rewatch this movie while rereading the novel? I did, yeah. I rewatched it a couple times in the past week. And it was interesting, too, because my previous method of watching it wasn't working. And so I, again, bought this one on Amazon just to quick get it. And there were actually scenes I'd never seen before. And I was like, oh, weird. It was just a few of the dream sequences that I had never seen before. It is interesting on that note. I have never read the novel. Mm -hmm. This was my first time going through the novel and prep for this. I don't think I ever have realized as many times I've seen this movie, the boat scene. Yeah. And that it's supposed to be JFK and Uh Jackie Kennedy. I don't know that I like ever picked up on that. I did. This was the second time I'd read the book. And yeah, the first time I read the book was the first time I realized that too. Yeah, It's interesting because, yes, it is such a faithful adaptation of the book that the book helped me pick up a lot of little details that I uh-huh. might have missed in the movie otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So what the fuck was that, <laughs> that part? Because that was the only part where I was like, I don't understand this. <laughs> the night of the conception, the night of the assault, when she's dreaming yeah. that she's on the boat, she's on JFK's boat. She's with JFK and Jackie Kennedy. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was wondering what was going on with yeah. that. Okay. So what's the significance of that, having the context of the book and the movie? I'm trying to remember. I feel like she had just seen or read something about him, and that's why she was dreaming about him. Gotcha. I think it was one of those things where it was just the Kennedys were in her mind from something. Yeah. It read to me as just how your brain pulls in subconsciously the shit that's going on in your day-to-day life, but it happens in weirdo nonsense ways. They kept saying she had the mouse bite because they Uh ate the chocolate mouse instead of chocolate mousse. (laughs) She got bitten by the mouse. Yeah. There is also kind of a recurring thing in the novel about everybody losing their fucking mind in New York because the Pope is about to come visit. And that's like a big deal, Mm -hmm. and everybody's freaking out about it. That felt more like in the backdrop of this movie. Yeah. Yeah, it is in the backdrop, they mentioned, but that's why the Pope shows up. Rosemary is a lapsed Catholic, Mm -hmm. so that plays into it as well, too, is how much she still believes in any of this. 
That's actually one of the things that cracked me up the most in the book that we don't see in the movie because we don't get her internal thoughts as much is Mm -hmm. when the Pope appears to her in that moment, she doesn't want him to know she's just had an orgasm. (laughs) Uh Yeah. And it's interesting too. Like, I think that dream sequence was really well put together and Mm -hmm. edited in a very interesting way. And I like the surreal aspect of her being in bed, but on this boat and Mm -hmm. feeling floaty. Yeah. You know, like we've all been there. If you've ever been really fucking drunk or like on weird meds, feeling that just of your inner ear, just going nuts, just stuff like passing through the mirror behind her into a different scene and Mm -hmm. off the edge of the bed, transitioning to a different scene. Like all that stuff is very interesting and ethereal then obviously it's all punctuated at the end by this horrific image of the fucking devil yeah <laughs> yeah you know you see what you need to see but you don't mm-hmm. ever fully get the entire picture right it's very effective and even the way it's handled in the book isn't as frightening like we know as reading it we know she's being assaulted but she thinks it's guy at first she thinks it's yeah. her husband and that was another one of the things that just makes me laugh is because she just keeps focusing on oh he's bigger than usual uh-huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> says a lot about guy too yeah. <laughs> i mean uh-huh he deserves it because he is a big piece of shit <laughs> so yeah that was another thing that made me like, i love those little moments of humor within this just horrific story but yeah in the book you know you get those moments where she smells the sulfur and she notices that something uh-huh. is weird and in the movie she kind of shouts it out in the book i read it more as she's thinking it of this is not a dream this is really happening yeah yeah it seemed like from what i could read and tell that the moments where she's eating more raw or not even really cooked meat mm-hmm. are highlighted a little bit more in the book but yeah. they are shown in the movie yeah. a couple times but it is a little bit brief one of the things that stood out to me in this movie which also, by the way, like, fuck guy. What a shit, that character. And that moment during the dream sequence, and it's like, what's real, what isn't. But then you see him among the cultists and yeah. among all the other neighbors chanting. He mentions she wasn't drugged enough. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, fuck you, guy. Of course, you're going to sell her out yeah. to get the part and do this. Yeah. But uh, the part that really struck me is like what a lot of the core of this movie is exploring fear wise and everything else is when she comes home with the pixie cut, which yeah. I gotta say, like, I mean, she looks amazing with both hairstyles, but the pixie cut looks really damn good on her. Mm-hmm. She comes home, immediately Guy is like, you need to get a refund for that haircut. Don't you ever do that again. Yeah, that was right. the biggest mistake you made. Just fucking nagging her, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's after, like, she's been losing control of her body. Mm-hmm. She's starting to feel like there's some gaslighting going on between the neighbors and even her husband and her own doctor. This is kind of, like, right at the start of that. So she has no control of any of that. The last thing she has control of is, I can get a fucking haircut. So she does. And then she's nagged by a guy as soon as she walks in the door for it. Which, again, is all the more baffling because she's stunning with the haircut, frankly. Yeah. I really enjoyed going through the book in prep for this. And it did surprise me how close the movie really does hew to it. To the point where there's just weird details. Like you find out that Roman was given a portable radio for their trip and then you see him carrying the radio in the movie like that's a Mm -hmm. very specific detail that's never drawn attention to it's just there and i think that's part of what works with this movie is that there is so much attention to detail that is a lot of show don't tell Mm -hmm. in terms of translating the book to the screen oh yeah i love the little details you just have to be paying attention to pick up yeah or in our case read the book and then you get a lot more out of it and you feel like oh I know what that's supposed to be, or I get what this thing is. 
it's not make or break stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But it does make it feel like a very rich and kind of complete text, which what's wild to me is Polanski apparently wrote a 272-page screenplay. The general rule of thumb is that one page of a screenplay roughly translates to one minute of the movie. If you have a two-hour movie, it's probably going to be a 120-page screenplay, right? And his was four and a half hours? <laughs> what? What extra was in there? Because I don't feel like there's anything missing Yeah, there's just a few that wasn't things. in the book, yeah. right? There's a few small things, but not an extra two and a half hours. Right, oh no. Right? And yeah. then you read, oh, the first rough cut of this movie was four hours long. Holy shit. What else was in this movie? Right. What else was in his original cut? What else did he add to this story that the editor, Sam Osteen, had to like go through and trim out, mm-hmm. right? That's what's kind of baffling to me is what the fuck else was in this in the original version of it, you know, that they shot, apparently, not just what he wrote. So another general theme of this that I think is kind of interesting, and this, again, is part of the reason why this story is still so relevant and, frankly, timeless in a lot of ways, is what perpetuates evil and violence? How is evil allowed to still exist in a modern day, especially? How are actual Satanists allowed to like still do their thing or frankly any evil group right how are they still allowed to exist and the answer unfortunately is that there are a lot of people who are just willfully ignorant or passive or choose to ignore what's right in front of their face because oh well I have a family to consider Mm -hmm. or oh I have a job to consider or oh I can't lose my health insurance or I can't jeopardize my retirement or my spouse relies on me or my kids rely on me. Like there's all these legitimate reasons why we turn blind eye to things and allow stuff to kind of slip by us. You know, how many times have we seen bad shit happen in real life? Somebody being shitty to somebody else. And like, we just didn't say anything, right? Yeah. There's just weird little things like that that everybody is guilty of from time to time. And it's just kind of an issue of degrees. But that's what I think is interesting is as much as we are behind Rosemary, there is still just the idea of she went along with all of this until it was clearly too late that she started to really kind of wake up and realize what was happening and trying to be proactive instead of reactive. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of where the story ultimately ends up is just the result of her and Guy being in a weird fucking dynamic with their relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How many times does he lie to her about basic simple shit in this movie? How many times is he offhandedly negging her, talking bad about her, belittling her, being patronizing to her, Mm -hmm. even before he's fully in the fucking plot. You know, there's just all of these things. We can chalk it up to the 60s, certainly, and it was a different time, and women were expected to be demure to their male partners, etc. Like, there's definitely that degree, which is interesting to look back on and say, huh, times were different. Mm -hmm. But then there's also still just the idea that she doesn't want to bother anybody. She doesn't want to be a burden. So she's constantly pushing herself back. Mm -hmm. And there's so many times where, like, you want her to speak up for herself. You want to just shake her by the shoulders and be like, girl, get out of this shit. And she does that a little bit in the book, because that's one of the scenes that's left out of the movie is 
in between the conception and her finding out she's pregnant and she goes away to Hutch's cottage. Mm-hmm. And for the first few days, she's loving the freedom. She's loving being away from a guy. And then slowly she talks herself out of it. She's like, well, was it really that bad what he did? I mean, he did it for the yeah. purpose of making a baby. Oh, man. You know, so she talks herself into forgiving him and going back home. That's so fucked. Yeah, I take that like kind of what is shown in the movie, too. Uh, I wonder if you guys agree with this or not, but I think she is forced into isolation, but the way she's forced into isolation is through a lot of manipulation and causing herself to force herself into isolation. Almost like the idea of the end of that French play or whatever that we talked about with American Psycho, how you could technically leave hell whenever you want, but they never leave hell because they choose to stay there and there's no exit for that reason. It felt a little bit like that was kind of the idea behind the forced isolation, not just the neighbors being super nosy, not just the doctor telling her to do this and that, and the one neighbor giving her that special drink every day at noon or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, that drink looked disgusting, by the way. Fuck. And Aaron, you you mentioned earlier, why is evil allowed to exist? I can tell you why, because God is dead. The year is one. (laughs) God is done. Hail Satan. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because the 60s was this weird period of that secular modernism finally starting to take hold. And then with a fucking vengeance, man, it comes back hardcore in the late 70s to the present, where now half the country is run by fucking Christian dominionists who legitimately believe devils control the government, even though I am part of the government question mark all this nonsense it's wild how this movie plays everything is being totally normal very grounded nothing crazy supernatural is going on and then when the rug is pulled at the end and turns out oh no here's these actual occultists and turns out oh you did have a devil baby here it is there was no illusion about that once all that final reveal happens it's so telling and just like a kick in the gut when they know exactly what to do, which is just use her maternal instincts against her mm-hmm. in order to like keep her drawn into the conspiracy and keep her complicit and keep her complacent. Mm-hmm. A mother's love for her son. Yeah. And yeah. we see that a lot more again in the book than in the movie. In the movie, we'd kind of rely on Mia Farrow's facial expressions. And she's Mm -hmm. looking at the baby, which I love the way they trick you into thinking you see the baby, but you never see the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Because for the longest time, I thought I did. And then I realized, no, she's remembering seeing the eyes. But in the book, she's staring at the baby and she's like, well, his eyes aren't that bad once you really look at them. Uh You know, and she's talking to him. She's like, can't you give mama a smile? One of the things I kind of wish that they had included in the movie is, again, I feel like it's interesting that the things they left out are the moments where Rosemary's standing up for herself is she kind of pushes back against Roman when he insisted the baby's name is Adrian Stephen, and she says, no, his name is Andrew, Andrew John. Yeah. And Minnie is finally like, really, Roman is that big a deal? Uh-huh. Because we're going to win her over. She's going to raise this baby, so shut up about the name. <laughs> yeah. Who gives a fuck what the baby's actually named? And she's like, he's not going to wear black all the time. I love that. She's like, he's not yeah. going to be dressed in black all the time. <laughs> the other detail that cracked me up was her just going like, well... It'll be fine once we trim his claws. They yeah. really won't be that sharp after we, like, clean them up. It's like, yeah. oh, God, oh, God. Well, and there was oh another God. funny detail earlier on in the book when she's talking about Laura Louise knitting some booties that are just all the wrong shape for feet. And it's like, yeah, that's because Laura Louise uh-huh. knows what his feet are going to look like. Yep. Oh, man, it kind of go to something that's just 
off kilter humor and it doesn't even need to be said it's just shown i love how half the satanists are basically just elderly people yeah oh they're all old not people. Yeah, old this people is great. you would expect yeah exactly yeah <laughs> they're all nannies and pop pops the woman knitting is the one who's the most evil satanist too <laughs> the one who's the most prototypical grandma uh-huh she's the one like mocking her i think it's laura louise i can't stand that woman yeah laura louise. <laughs> yeah she's such an evil asshole you know this might just be like my fucked up cynical worldview but we're all told and and this is not american this is not modern the utes have always been told respect your elders yeah always treat old people with respect Bend over backwards to make old people comfortable and give them what they need because you will one day to be old, right? Right. You should, you know, value the wisdom that they have, etc. That's Romero's amusement park. That's what it's about. <laughs> uh-huh. I'll be real. Some of the absolute most shitty, selfish, awful people that I've ever met are, like, old and should know better. Yeah. Old people are sometimes some of the fucking worst because I think they know they can get away with it and they just are past the point of giving a fuck. So they do what they want. Yeah, especially if you ever worked retail or customer service. Ding, yeah. ding, ding, raises yeah. both of my hands, yeah. right? Yeah. I have worked high and low different points of that. I'm still somewhat in a job where I'm dealing with that. But yeah, it's just one of those things where am I surprised that the people who plotted this whole thing out, who literally groomed this woman to be raped and impregnated and then basically held prisoner by that mm -hmm. are these fucking lovable old people that you're just like oh but they're so cute no i'm not fucking surprised no i'm not <laughs> fucking surprised when we have an entire fucking generation of people right now in real life who just refuse to fucking go old and <laughs> move on and let somebody else make decisions and run this country and live our fucking lives and be able to do the adult thing and, you know, buy a house, participate in society as adults. We have an entire generation of people who's just fucking clinging on to everything that they can possibly scrape from us. Yeah, like, I'm yeah. going to be cynical about that. So does it surprise me at the end of this movie that that's who ends up being the actual villains of it? No, not at all. It is funny. The ending of this movie with all the old people just yelling, Hail Satan! Yeah. Hail Satan! is still the funniest shit, just because it's so surreal, and it is just so matter-of-fact, like, oh, this is what it is, huh? Mm -hmm. Never do I watch this movie at the end and just, I'm not laughing my ass off. There are just so many little beats at the end that make me laugh. Like, when she yells at Roman, shut up, you're not here, I don't hear you. Yeah, you're in Dubrovnik. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Dubrovnik. Or Minnie brings her the tea. Is there tennis root? No, it's just plain old Lipton's. Uh-huh. <laughs> the old Asian guy, like, wanting to take her picture <laughs> when she's, like, breaking down on the couch. That's yeah. the last line of the book, is him taking the pictures of her. Uh-huh. I love the weird detail. I don't remember this being from the book, so this might be something unique to the movie. It could be wrong. I love the fucking weird detail where Rosemary has brought with her one of the giant yeah. kitchen knives. She has like a full-size chef's knife yeah. with her as she crossed over into the other apartment. And so when she first gets there, she's got this fucking knife in her hand, just ready to stab somebody. And then there's that moment of full fucking revelation and shock mm -hmm. where she has the like full breakdown and just drops the knife. Yeah. And it studs like right into the floor. Yeah. And she kind of backs away in horror. And I love just 
how fucking matter of fact oh god geez <laughs> banal it is that many like walks over just stomps over pulls the knife out of the fucking hardwood floor and then rubs the spot yep. with her thumb a little bit just to like <laughs> she's like god damn it my floor that is such a stupid weird detail but it says so much about what yes. these people are and how they believe in this stuff and how it's just such a matter of fact for their lives that, oh, we represent evil. We are part of this thing that it's just such like a non-factor for them. It's just daily life, you know, that that's what's going on to the point where she's like, oh, I'm more bothered with you fucking up my floor, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. All that was great. Uh, just, uh, Ruth Gordon's so fucking good yeah. at this. Hello, how are you? Fine, yeah, come in a minute. Yes, of course, please do. I just come over to thank you for saying those nice things to us the other night. Oh, no, please. Poor Terry. We thought maybe we failed her some way. Though her note made it crystal clear we hadn't. She'll never know how helpful it was in such a shock moment. So I do thank you. Roman does, too. Roman's the hubby. You're welcome. I'm glad I could help. Yeah. Well, she was cremated yesterday. Now we got to forget and go on. It won't be easy with only children of her own you have any. No, we don't. Well, there you go. Oh, that's a nice... Look how you put the table on. Isn't that interesting? I saw it in a magazine. Oh, my nice picture. What does your hubby do? He's an actor. I knew it. I said it to Roman yesterday. He's so good looking. What movies was he in? No movies. He was in two plays called Luther and Nobody Loves an Albatross and a lot of television and radio. Listen, Rosemary... I got a two-inch thick solo in steak. Sit and defrost and right this minute. When you and Guy come over and have supper with us tonight, what do you say? Oh, no, we couldn't. Why well, not? No, really, that's very kind of you. Listen, be a real help to us. <laughs> First night we'll be alone since. Are you sure it wouldn't be too much trouble oh, for you? Oh, honey, there's trouble. I wouldn't ask you. All right, you go ahead and count on us. I'll have to check with Guy, though. Listen, you tell him I won't take no for an answer. Oh, here's a She's definitely not a large Midwestern woman as described in the book, but she is perfect for this part. Oh, she's so oh, good. Oh, yeah. Thousand percent. And it kind of goes back again to something that we talked about previously, Aaron, of just how many times have you walked by somebody and they seem perfectly normal when they're out and about or like you're even socializing with them. But then behind closed doors, they're like praying to Satan. Yeah. <laughs> and performing devil rape rituals yeah so another thing i want to bring up too and i guess heather you've read the book i've read the book there's basically nothing different about the ending of the book and the movie Mm -hmm. it's not one of those instances where like oh god they changed the whole fucking thing around i know i griped recently about knock at the cabin yeah the Shyamalan movie which was an adaptation of the paul tremblay novel cabin at the end of the world the ending of those two things is completely massively different and changes the entire tone of the whole thing this movie not so much What I find interesting is people are really fucking divisive on the ending of this movie, Mm -hmm. and it still causes a lot of conversation, and there's a lot of people who go back and forth and like, well, they should have done this, or they should have done this, or I wish they had done this. I just did a little bit of that during recommendations, talking about, oh god, I wish this movie had done something a little bit differently. This is one of those examples where like, I don't get it. (laughs) You know, what did you expect with the ending? Where did you think this was going? It leads you down the road and then it actually fucking pays off and gives you kind of what the movie's been leading you to this entire Mm -hmm. time. 
how are we surprised? You know, ultimately, mm-hmm. what are y'all's thoughts on the ending at the end of the day? Well, as someone who's birthed to very strange looking creatures, because they are very strange looking creatures. They are, first yeah. Born. They just are. <laughs> you do immediately fall in love with them, generally, you know. Obviously, every woman is different, and even with both of my children, it was a different reaction to each one. So it doesn't surprise me that even though he is a literal demon baby, she looks at him and she just sees her son. That's just her little baby. So, yeah. you know, as an outsider looking in, yeah, it's kind of disturbing because it's like, shit, woman, that's the devil's baby. But it's also her baby. And so, yes, she is going to look at him and she's going to say, but maybe I can raise him right. Maybe I can cancel it out. Yeah, I like this ending a lot. I just kind of assumed everyone universally liked this ending, but I like this ending a lot and I like it for how complicated it is Mm -hmm. because on one hand, you're rooting for her to just finally stand up for yourself. There is a part of me that really wanted her to go in there, stab some motherfuckers, (laughs) grab the baby and escape or something. But then there's also a part of me that understands how it ends the way it does. I could see why it can be kind of infuriating for some people because this movie analyzes women's liberation on top of everything else and how women are treated in this time period, specifically in America. Going back to what you had mentioned earlier, Heather, I saw that it wasn't even until like 1962 that anyone was even thinking about making marital rape illegal. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were pointing that it was the second wave of feminism that came in the early 60s, late 50s that is to thank for that. So this movie's kind of coming off the heels of all that at the height of women's lib. I do understand that there's some frustration like, okay, why didn't the movie have a better or a good ending where she finally escapes? She finally... Good in air quotes, yeah. She punishes the people that have kind of manipulated her into her self-isolation this entire time. But I actually really appreciate the dark ending where her instincts take over and she falls in love with her son. Because you're right, same thing with me with my daughters when they Mm -hmm. first came out. They look like slimy little (laughs) gremlins when they first come out, but the second you lay eyes on them, everything changes, and you kind of do anything for them at that point. And yeah, I think there's a part of even me where I would say, like, yeah, if if my child was a literal demon, I'd still love them, and I'd still take care of them and try and raise them. Yeah, of course I'm going to do that. So I get it. I do. I can understand how it's a little frustrating, but I think this ending is a great ending if not a perfect ending and part of it is because it's so layered and complicated Mm -hmm. yeah and speaking of little demons there's so much more that i want to say about this movie but we're coming up on 10 30 my time and my children are still awake so i need to get them to bed (laughs) hell yeah this was a good conversation and i i really enjoyed getting your perspective on it do you have any final thoughts any final thing you do want to say about the movie There are just so many tiny little details in this one that are just so creepy to me. Like when Terry, the other woman that was living with the Castavets when she dies, and Rosemary sees the necklace lying in the pool of blood, the same necklace that is Uh gifted to her. Uh That's so creepy to me because I don't think Minnie knows that Rosemary knows that. Yeah. And the moment she thinks she's safe with Dr. Hill, and then he calls Dr. Saperstein. I go back and forth as to whether or not Dr. Hill ever believed her or if he believed her until she invoked Saperstein's name. And he's like, I I cannot go against this respected doctor. Yeah, that is such a gut punch when that moment happens. Such a betrayal. Yes, but I think the most heartbreaking moment for me is when she's in labor and she's 
being knocked out because they've just given her that tranquilizer and she's begging her baby to forgive her because she can't protect them. Yeah. That's all yeah. we ever want to do with our children as parents is protect them. And she feels she's failed in that moment. Yep. Yeah. Well said. But yeah, thank you once again for coming on. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, before we let you go, do you have any anything you want to plug for our listeners to check out? Yes, check out my Etsy shop, please. I've been uh, promoting that big time. I'm trying to save up for my next tattoos. So I'm trying to sell a bunch of scrunchies. <laughs> and so that is the Patchwork Witch on Etsy. You can also find me on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram as Patchwork Witch. I'm actually on Instagram, it's Patchwork Witch Quilts because Patchwork Witch was already taken. And I have a special coupon code for Watch If You Dare listeners. If any of you like scrunchies and par- choose to purchase them, just use coupon code WATCH for 15% off in my Etsy shop. Hell awesome. Yeah, yeah thank yeah. you. Please, listeners, go check that out. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this was fun. We got to get you back on for another movie. Absolutely. You know I will always come on and you know run my mouth because I love to talk. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. We got to do this again. Excellent. Yes. Thank you so much. All right, cool. So let's run through some of the production history of this, because this movie is pretty fucking fascinating and involves a lot of big people kind of at different points of their careers. And this movie also kind of had a very interesting effect on things to come later. So first of all, like we've mentioned a couple times, obviously this book is written by Ira Levin originally. Stephen King himself has said that Levin is, quote, the Swiss watchmaker of suspense novels. That's high praise. Every novel he has ever written has been a marvel of plotting. He makes what the rest of us do look like those $5 watches you can buy in the discount drugstores. He was very much a pop horror writer for his time. Born and raised in New York, studied English and philosophy in college, which makes sense considering the types of books he would write. He served in the Signal Corps during the Korean War, writing and producing training films for TV and radio. His first play, No Time for Sergeants, was a military comedy. It was an adaptation of Mac Hyman's novel, the same name, which starred a then-unknown Andy Griffith, who would go on to star in the movie adaptation as well, and that would totally kick off his career. So, like, Andy Griffith, fucking Matlock, wouldn't be around if not for Ira Levin. Rosemary's Baby was Levin's second published novel. But it arrived more than a decade after A Kiss Before Dying, which came out in 1953. He was already a known commodity in Hollywood at this time because he had already made adaptations of uh, A Kiss Before Dying into a movie. His plays No Time for Sergeants and Critics' Choice had been adapted into movies. He was kind of already a known deal in Hollywood at this time. After Rosemary's Baby... His other novels would go on to be adapted, and this included The Stepford Wives, or twice The Stepford Wives. He wrote The Stepford Wives as Uh well. (laughs) And he wrote Marathon Man, The Boys from Brazil, Death Trap, and fucking Sliver. So he had some bangers in there. Rosemary's Baby specifically would go on to sell four million copies. 
Jeez. really kicked off the horror novel boom of that era. And within one year, it gets adapted up to the oh, screen. No. It got optioned before the book even published. Oh, okay. I mean, that's, that's yeah, not yeah. uncommon. That still happens to this day. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of interesting how Levin has felt about this afterward. I mean, this quote, I feel guilty that Rosemary's baby led to the exorcist and the omen. A whole generation has been exposed and has more belief in Satan. I don't believe in Satan, and I feel that the strong fundamentalism we have would not be as strong if there had not been so many of these books. Of course, I didn't send back any of the royalty checks. (laughs) It's interesting how he has felt in the wake of all of this, being that he is not religious. That's an interesting point. A lot of our parents in the boomer generation constantly bring up these stories and how scary they are and how it really makes the devil feel Uh real. So I kind of get it. Well, like I joked about earlier, too, we talked about this in our True Detective Patreon episodes as well. It's really interesting how much this shit kind of plays into a lot of the modern Q nonsense is predicated on their secret Satan worshipers everywhere. We have to root them out. The fuck? You know, like so much of that weird conspiracy thought is fueled largely by stuff like this in pop culture, right? Because people just latch onto this shit. A lot of times they just take it as, oh, well, this has got to be based on some kind of fact, right? So, like, there's got to be real shit out there. No, this is a work of fiction, right? But yeah, there's such a weird pervasive belief that the devil is around every corner. I mean, that was all the satanic panic in the 80s and 90s. And even up to now, that's kind of still going on. I mean, there was literally just some GOP gubernatorial candidate who lost the last election. And she was literally like, I believe there's fucking Satanists in the government. I believe that um, 9-11 was a human sacrifice on a mass scale. I think that, you know, they have been doing this work with these demons and but the devil demands a sacrifice. Look at any Holly person in Hollywood or famous person. They had to sacrifice something, whether it was their innocence or another person or a thing or a child in order to get to where they are. You have to pro- like provide a sacrifice. And if the government is working with these demons, they demand their sacrifice and just killing one person isn't going to be enough. You have to kill 3,000. Oh, and you have to do it on live television. Oh, and you have to air it in every classroom, a public room, a public school classroom in the country. So it was very much so. I believe that 9-11, like spiritually, was a human sacrifice, uh, some kind of sacrificial um, presentation for the powers that be that are taking over our government and working with our government. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Another <laughs> lieutenant governor of some GOP state was like, Oh, I was reading in my Bible in Revelations, and it's really interesting, like, how much the Democrats really line up with all of Satan and his minions and blah, blah, blah. And it's just pretty much fact of fact. Joe Biden's the Antichrist. And you're like, wait, what? I was actually reading Revelation last night, and I'd been reading it for some time. And I've compared Biden and, and Harris and Mayorkas and John Pierre to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. People genuinely believe this shit still to this day. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. William Castle, have you heard of him? Legendary director, writer, producer, known for his inventive marketing gimmicks to promote his B-grade horror, sci-fi, and thrillers. 
Derek, spoiler alert, you're going to love this guy. Okay. So he became enamored with stage productions of Dracula. And he like saw Dracula a shitload of times. He met Bella Lugosi when he was playing Dracula on stage. Lugosi specifically recommended Castle for the role of stage manager for the traveling production when he was like 15. And he dropped out of school at age 15 and started working in the theater. At age 23, he began working at Columbia Pictures and would direct his first feature just five years later. He was a dude who gained a solid reputation as somebody who made mostly genre schlock, but was always making them on time and under budget. He was making movies independently for a while as well, too. He just completely got out of the industry, which meant that he no longer had the whole studio apparatus behind him to market him, right? So this is where it gets fun. He starts coming up with all these really goofy theater gimmicks, which we have seen other people copy in some movies, but this is the dude who invented this shit, and he's the master of it. So for his movie Macabre, he did this stunt where he gave each audience member a $1,000 life insurance policy. And I'm giving you big air quote fingers right now Mm -hmm. in case they died (laughs) of fright during the show. What a marketing ploy. I love it. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And he had, in air quotes, nurses out in the lobby and a hearse parked out front just in case, you know, anybody died, right? Hell yeah. (laughs) Love it. For House on Haunted Hill. That movie featured Emerjo, which was a plastic skeleton that they would swing across the auditorium on a wire. (laughs) And it just became this thing where, like, kids started just throwing their fucking popcorn buckets and shoes and shit at it to, like, knock it off every time it would come down. For his movie The Tingler, it featured Percepto, which they really just rigged random auditorium chairs to an electric buzzer. So at random times in the movie, people would just get buzzed while they were watching the movie. And that was the Tingler getting them. I want to say John Waters quoted the Tingler as one of his favorite Uh films, by the way. And John Waters would do similar (laughs) stunts for this. He would give everybody like the Pink Flamingos barf bags as they went into the theater. 13 Ghosts featured Illusiono. You know how like 3D glasses, like the paper ones, the red and blue. This was like a weird little viewer that had a red side and a blue side. And at certain points in the movie, you could look through the blue side and see ghosts hovering around on the movie. And then you could flip it around to the red side and they would disappear. That's cool as shit. And it was literally just a color correction thing, you know, with filters and whatnot. That was a fun little gimmick. So anyway, William Castle was the master of this shit. He would do it at all these small theaters throughout the country. And he would tour his movies around. He was very hands-on during his independent years because he was having to fucking bust his hump to get his shit done, right? The Joe Dante movie Matinee, John Goodman's very much playing a William Castle-type character. That movie is very much a loving nod to William Castle and all of his goofiness. Anyway, Castle got his hands on the galley copy of Rosemary's Baby, which galley copies are like, just a very rough cut strictly for the publishers to like sit and fucking read through kind of copy of the book. Right. This dude mortgaged his fucking house for a second time to get the film rights to this before the book published. Literally betting the house. Uh Uh-huh. Like literally betting the house on this. Yeah. So he brought (laughs) the novel to producer Robert Evans at Paramount intending to direct it. And Evans was like, this looks fucking dope. I am down. Let's make a deal. You can't direct it. 
You can stay on as a producer, but you can't direct this. Partly just, again, William Castle's reputation. He was known for making, like, schlocky B-movies. Evans was like, there's potential for this to be something legit. So, like, I don't want the fucking B-movie guy directing this. Ultimately, Castle has a cameo. He's the, like, man at the payphone during that scene. Okay, that was him. He did want to play Dr. Saperstein, and Polanski and Evans are both like, nah, dog, no. Man, he got the shaft. Yeah. (laughs) And the last thing about Castle is, after this movie, he became extremely paranoid that there was a fucking curse involved with this movie. So much the fact that he kind of went into, like, weird self-isolation for a few years, went really low-key. Because he seriously thought that at any given moment, he was going to get hit by a car or some crazy shit. I saw this movie pop up in cursed movie lists, uh-huh. and I didn't get a chance to look up why. Well, I mean, you know, we did spend 30 fucking minutes talking about Roman Polanski, so there's yeah, <laughs> there's one thing. In retrospect, now I see why, yeah. So there's a couple of other things that I'll mention in just a minute. Okay, so that gets us to Robert Evans. Another major Hollywood figure. He's flamboyant, womanizing, a fucking cocaine hound. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. He was this wonderkind producer who completely turned Paramount into a fucking juggernaut studio, basically single-handedly. While pounding cocaine. (laughs) pounding cocaine. And being a chauvinist, I'm guessing. Yeah. He fell sideways into acting after making a small fortune in women's lingerie with his brother. Holy shit. Tommy Wiseau (laughs) totally ripped off his whole shit, being like, oh, I'm going to sell denim, and then, like, making movies. Be there for Levi's jeans. Street Fashions has the best prices, the best quality, and the best selection of Levi's jeans anywhere. Be who you want to be in Levi's jeans from Street Fashions. To be or not to be? Who do you want to be? But pretty quickly, he moved just straight into producing. And in just five fucking years, Evans went from being no one to the head of production at fucking Paramount, which is wild to think about in hindsight. That's insane. The studio system is just so different. You know, you hear all the stories from back in the day of, yeah, I wanted to get into pictures. So, you know. I basically just walked up to the studio and was like, hey, I want a job. And they were like, cool. Yeah, come sweep this floor. Three weeks later, I was directing my first movie. The fuck, right? You hear about that shit all the time. So Evans went on to produce some big, heavy shit in the next couple of years. Barefoot in the Park, The Odd Couple, Romeo and Juliet, which fucking all of us watched in high school, The Italian Job, True Grit, Love Story, Harold and Maude, which also stars Ruth Gordon. The Godfather 1 and 2, have you fucking heard of them? Serpico, The Conversation, Chinatown, The Great Gatsby, which all of us probably watched in school. Dude made some fucking massive hits. Massive critical successes, massive box office successes, massive award successes. Quick aside, it still blows my mind to this day that they took the concept of that Romeo and Juliet movie and like, yeah, but what if we made it modern and with guns and it somehow fucking worked? Oh, <laughs> uh, God, I, I'm not a fan. Anyway. Yeah, I'm not either, but it yeah. worked, unfortunately. Yeah. Evans has a wild fucking life. A lot of ups and downs. He's exactly the kind of shitty studio head person in real life that you think he would be. He basically got cucked out of a relationship with Ali McGraw by Steve McQueen. Dude had a fucking crazy career. Massive drug problems throughout the 70s and 80s. He's a fucking character. 
there have been so many movies at this point that are about the making of these other movies. There's that fucking Paramount show recently that's about the making of The Godfather where, like, somebody is playing Robert Evans, right? Like, there, it's wild that he has been actually portrayed in a movie multiple times at this point. But there's a really good documentary about him called The Kid Stays in the Picture that came out 20 fucking years ago at this point. That kind of goes through, like, his whole story and the story of Paramount Studios and a lot of the big shit that he was involved with and, like, how it got to that point. Really good doc. I would definitely recommend to anybody that's interested in Hollywood and the history of the industry and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, Evans, again, turned Castle down to direct because he specifically had his eye on Roman Polanski, who at this time was a rising star in Europe, and he wanted to bring him to Hollywood. So you know, like I mentioned earlier, we're going to jump into Polanski real quick just to at least contextualize where he was at this point. He was born in Paris to Jewish parents from Russia and Poland. The family moved back to Krakow in 1937. Uh, I don't know if anybody realizes that date, but that's maybe the worst fucking time to move back to Poland. So his family was imprisoned in one of the Warsaw ghettos when Germany invaded Poland in 39. His parents were both taken to camps. Roman was shuttled off to foster homes of Roman Catholic families, where he kind of took a pseudonym to conceal his Jewish heritage. After leaving these homes and just kind of roaming the war-torn countryside and just fucking surviving until the war's end, he finally was reunited with his father, who survived the camps. His mother died, and then together he and his father moved back to Krakow. And this all happened before he was fucking 12 years old. He was obsessed with movies all growing up, especially in his teens. He attended film school in Lodz and acted as well. He directed some shorts there. His debut feature was Knife in the Water, which was a big international hit. It was nominated for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars. That was co-written by Jerzy Skolomowski, who's writer, producer, director, actor. He's got a really interesting filmography. He did The Deep End, The Shout, Moonlighting. EO that just recently came out, which is the most fucking sad, you're going to like cry over the life of a fucking donkey movie. (laughs) But then he also acted and he has weird bit parts like he's the like crazy scientist doctor guy in Mars Attacks. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he's the Russian general guy in the first Avengers movie that Black Widow beats up. He's fucking awesome in Cronenberg's Eastern Promises, by the way. He's one of the supporting characters then he's fucking great in that movie polanski had a very brief first marriage and a spell in france where he had difficulty getting into the industry because they're very weird and exclusionary so he likes it fucking went to england and that's where he made repulsion which is another movie i would like to eventually maybe cover on this show some point in time again i think we've already covered the like roman polanski conversation here cul-de-sac and The Fearless Vampire Killers, which is where he met his future wife, Sharon Tate. Yeah. So this all leads to Rosemary's Baby. From there, as far as Polanski goes, again, in August of 69, while Polanski was filming Macbeth in England, Tate and four of her friends were murdered by members of the Charles Manson cult at their home in Los Angeles, and this permanently fucked up his entire worldview and his life. He came back to Hollywood one more time to make Chinatown, and then he went to go make The Tenant in Paris, both of which are super dark, super cynical, 
very much kind of reflecting his new worldview at this point in his life after all this bullshit. But then after this is where all the legal shit happens that we talked about earlier. Yeah. The Tenet is another movie of his I want to check out, even though I don't like the man. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Same with Repulsion. It is the third part of the apartment trilogy as it's kind of dubbed now with Repulsion, Rosemary's Baby, and The Tenant. So again, was, still is, a fugitive to American law and can basically only travel to, like, France and Poland. So that's where he's been all this time. And again, it's complicated. He's been married to actress Emmanuel Seigneur since 89. They have kids. There's been tons of other people that are working with him. Again, lots of stars that everybody likes. So anyway, yeah. All of him aside, Robert Evans wanted Polanski on this movie, so he sent him the Rosemary's Baby Galley, and then a script for this movie called Downhill Racer, which was about fucking skiing, because he knew that Roman Polanski was, like, into skiing, and that was kind of the way that he, like, drew him in, because initially he was like, eh, I don't know about a fucking horror movie, but then when he read it, of course, he got hooked, so he wanted to both write and direct. Yeah. Paramount was like, cool, let's do it, so they gave him a $1.9 million budget. And he got a $150,000 paycheck, which was massive for the time. Yeah, that's 1968 money. So that gets us to casting. Polanski originally wanted a more full-featured, va-va-voom, all-American actress like Tuesday Weld or Jane Fonda or Patty Duke or Sharon Tate, his wife, to play Rosemary. Evans wanted a lesser-known actress and somebody that kind of had a little bit of an air of naivete and innocence, and Pharaoh was kind of the name that he landed on because she was in a popular soap at the time called Peyton Place. She was also very much in the public eye because she had recently just gotten married to fucking Frank Sinatra. Pharaoh really only had one film credit at this point. But like I said, she was on Peyton Place, so that's where most people kind of knew her from. She took the role. Frank Sinatra was fucking pissed because he had been trying to convince her to drop out of fucking acting altogether. He didn't want her working. Again, talk about how this script and this story probably spoke to her as a woman in the 1960s trying to, like, make a career for herself. That uh, her new husband's like, nah, fuck it, I don't want you working. Yeah, wasn't Frank Sinatra kind of a monster, too, in his own right? Yeah, Frank was a dick. So, this film obviously boosted her into stardom. Mia Farrow also is, you know, not uncomplicated in the life that she has lived. You know, not to say that she has perpetrated anything, but she was married to Woody Allen through all the fucking 80s and was in all of his movies in the 80s. God damn, I didn't realize there was a direct line between Polanski and him. Uh Uh-huh. And they broke up once she accused him of sexually assaulting their child in the early 90s. Unfortunately, she has also just been you know, wrapped up in lots of awful shit, whether or not it was her fault or blind eye or complete innocence, whatever. She has unfortunately just been involved in a lot of other shit. John Cassavetes was, still is, a very interesting figure throughout American independent cinema. I see he is. He's been dead for a while, but he continues to be a massive influence. When you hear people that are our age, that are now directors, he is still a name that comes up very often. But Robert Redford and Jack Nicholson were considered for this role, and Polanski is the one who specifically recommended Cassavetes. I think he knocks out of the park in this. Oh, he's fucking great, yeah. He's such a bastard. Yeah. Yeah. He originally only went to acting school because his friends were like, oh, it's going to be fucking packed with girls, you should go. But (laughs) while he was there, he did meet 
a girl. He met his wife, Gina Rollins, and they would be married for the rest of his life. They got married in 1954. He stayed married to her his whole life. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Because that is not a common thing from what I've been seeing of Hollywood in general, but especially like around this time period. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely not. The two of them together made some fucking incredible work for sure. He opened his own acting workshop in 1956, kind of in direct opposition to the whole Strasbourg Stanislavski method style acting that was kind of popular at the actor's studio. I know you and I have gone on and on and talked about method acting and generally what our thoughts are on that, but his <laughs> yep. acting style was very much about spontaneity, you know, kind of feeling from your gut and emotions and not this whole, we got to explore the psyche and create this character and you have to journal and create a backstory and all this, right? Yeah, I'm going to go live in the forest for three months. Yeah, none of that. He kind of famously pulled this stunt where... He claimed to have written a scene that was scripted out and he and this other actor, you know, performed it. And really, it was just them fucking improving the entire time. And Lee Strasberg was just like, oh, it was so incredible. I can't believe you wrote it. Oh, your acting is so good. And he was like, we made all this shit up, you dumb shit. <laughs> he was very much in opposition to this entire school of thought of acting and how to act and how to direct actors from what the like really accepted capital A art of it was at this time. And that would bump up against Polanski's directing style a lot. Cause he was very, no, we're going to plan all this shit out. We're going to rehearse. We're going to do things a million times. And again, Cassavetes was very like, no, let's do it from the gut. Let's do it one time. Let's get the truth of it. Blah, blah, blah. Just, it was very much not the same thing. And likewise, William Castle and Polanski also butted heads because Castle like worked really fucking fast and loose. And Polanski was very much overplanned, overshot, was very much a perfectionist when it came to making movies. And so they butted heads constantly. But yeah, Cassavetes would act and direct throughout all the 60s and was basically doing the thing that we see a lot of independent filmmakers do where like he takes a fucking acting gig, use that paycheck to then fund his smaller independent stuff. So, like, he shows up in the Dirty Dozen, gets a fucking supporting actor nomination at the Oscars, and then goes on to turn around and make Faces, which that came out the same year as Rosemary's Baby, and would actually be nominated for Best Original Screenplay, where Rosemary's Baby was nominated for Best Adapted, Adapted Screenplay yeah. the same year. It was also nominated for Best Actor and Best <laughs> Supporting Actress, which Lynn Carlin was in direct competition with Ruth Gordon for Rosemary's Baby the same year. Mia Farrow wasn't nominated as Best Actress? She was not, and we'll get to that in a second. Okay. So yeah, after this, Cassavetes would continue to make independent movies, some of the best shit in New Hollywood independent cinema, uh, Husbands, Woman Under the Influence, uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Gloria. Yeah, I mean, he worked until he died in 89, you know, and that was that. He was a massive drinker and cigarette smoker, so, like, you know, that shit caught up to him eventually. Ruth Gordon, that we've mentioned a couple times, who plays Minnie Castavet in this movie, who is a fucking delight. She really is. She started acting on Broadway at the age of 19 and continued to act on both stage and screen her entire career. And when I say started acting, we're talking silent movies. That far back, like birth of cinema. So her acceptance speech at the Oscars for Best Supporting Actress for Rosemary's Baby is on YouTube. You can watch it. It's fucking delightful. The first film that I was ever in 
was in 1915, and here we are, and it's 1969. Actually, I don't know why it took me so long, though I don't think, you know, that I'm backward. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Bill, thank you, Bob, thank you, Roman, and thank you, Mia, and thank all of you who voted for me, and all of you who didn't, please excuse me. But I believe she said she made her fucking debut in 1915, right? That's how long she's been in fucking movies. Yeah, I saw that. She was also a screenwriter, and she was nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars three times, most notably for Adam's Rib, which is a major old-school Hollywood movie. It's in the National Library and all kinds of shit now. But yeah, Rosemary's Baby came along at a time where her career was really slowed down, and it was kind of this nice major boost, and she did fucking 22 more projects after this movie, including some of her best-known work, like fucking Harold and Maude. And then she died in 85. So, great career, really interesting. Holy shit, you were there at the beginning of fucking movies, all the way to, like, <laughs> the second, third modern, complete industry revamp that happened. So, she had a nuts career. Sidney Blackmer, who plays Roman Castavet in the movie, had a very similar background to Gordon. He started in theater, he went to Broadway, he shot silent movies in Lee, New Jersey, when that was the Hollywood of, you know, the time. He also did a lot of radio work. All of his career went on pause so he could fight in fucking World War One Again, this is a movie full of old people who were old in the 60s, so that means they're, like, really yeah. old. Yeah, because he and the last actress were both born in the 1800s, uh -huh. still, technically. Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> he was also in stuff like High Society and one of the many versions of Count of Monte Cristo, and he died in 73. He died not long after this movie came out. Maurice Evans, that plays Hutch, who is Rosemary's kind of friend and confidant, also Started in silent movies and a lot of early Hollywood and TV shit. Ding, ding, ding. Here's our fucking Batman reference. He is in the 1966 Batman Adam West show where he plays the puzzler. <laughs> there you go. What is he, the shitty Riddler? <laughs> I guess, yeah. What he is most known for, and I know how you feel about this franchise, he plays Dr. Zaius in Planet of the Apes and the sequel Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Uh, he is fucking good in that movie as Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. I just remember that from The Simpsons. Yeah. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas, as they're doing like the Planet of the Apes musical. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're also lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Last person I'll mention from the cast, Dr. Saperstein is played by Ralph Bellamy. He was also, again, a lot of silent movies, old Hollywood TV. He's in His Girl Friday. We have mentioned him before because he is in The Wolf Band. He is one of the stars of that movie, which we have covered on the show. After Rosemary's Baby, he's in a lot of big comedies, Trading Places, Coming to America, Pretty Woman. So he had also a nice late career boom. Otherwise, too, there's like lots of fun character actors and that guy actors in this movie. Elisha Cook Jr. from The Killing uh, is like the real estate agent guy that shows him the apartment at the very beginning. The other doctor, I can't remember what his name was, is Charles Grodin from The Heartbreak Kid and Midnight Run, fucking Beethoven and Clifford. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in this movie. Diego, who is the 
elevator operator. He's a little bit more of a character in the book. Um, at least they point him out in the book more often. He's just kind of in the background in this movie. He's played by Durville Martin, who was a pretty big character actor in 60s and 70s black exploitation stuff. But he was also in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. He was in Sheba Baby with Pam Greer, which, bro, there's a great Pam Greer podcast going on right now. It's just like a whole retrospective of her career. Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem, Watermelon Man. But he also stars in and directed fucking Dolomite, which I've brought up on this show many times, like how much I love the fucking Rudy Ray Moore movies, which surprisingly have weird fucking horror elements in them, especially Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law, which perfectly thematically (laughs) ties in with Rosemary's Baby. So anyway, the film shot in the fall of 67. The exteriors for the Bramford building is all actually the Dakota building in New York, which is what the Bramford was kind of based on. All the apartment interiors are all studio sets at Paramount Studios back in L.A. The movie does a great job of hiding that fact, by the way. Absolutely. It does feel like a real lived in building. Well, like we joked in our stupid opening, Jesus fucking Christ, you see that apartment now and they talk about in the book. Oh, it's kind of run down. Oh, it's kind of weirdly laid out and it's kind of small. That fucking apartment now in New York would cost $7,000 a month to rent. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> maybe more. Yeah, maybe more. Because Polanski was an extreme perfectionist and had an eye for detail and shot and shot and shot and shot, the production very quickly fell behind schedule and ultimately went $400,000 over budget. Which that is in 1963 dollars, as you just said. So back to Sinatra, he pulled a fucking stunt where he sent a goon to the set to serve Mia Farrow with divorce papers in front of everyone and made a big deal of it. What a fucker. She wanted to bail from this movie and break her contract to like go patch things up with Frank. And Robert Evans showed her a rough cut of the movie that was halfway done and convinced her to stay and was like, I promise you, you will be fucking nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Please stay. And he convinced her to like finish making the movie. And as you mentioned a second ago, she was not nominated for this movie, which was kind of a big snub because she was nominated for like a BAFTA and a Golden Globe and like every fucking thing else. Right. The movie wrapped up production in late December. Again, they started shooting in August, which is bug nuts for a movie like this. Pharaoh sings the lullaby that is over the course of the score, which the score was written by Christoph Kameda. Also going back to, is this movie cursed? Kameda was a jazz musician. He scored a lot of Polanski's early films. He died the year after Rosemary's Baby came out because he just got in a fucking drunk fight with some other asshole at a stoop party in new york got pushed off the stoop and hit his head dead went to a coma died a couple of weeks later yeah there's a little bit of that curse i guess Uh right so the film opens in july of 68 and it grossed 33 million dollars so even with its way over budget that went up to almost four million dollars it made 33 so it was a big hit Post this movie, it's very interesting that this movie gets associated with The Omen and The Exorcist, like we talked about, and those movies have a ton of sequels, and there's technically not an actual sequel to this. There is, but there isn't. It's interesting that this didn't spawn a whole franchise, 
but there was a made-for-ABC-TV movie that came out in 1976 called Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. It is on YouTube in full, and it is watchable. It stars Patty Duke as Rosemary, which she was one of the actresses originally considered for Rosemary. George Maharis is Guy. Stephen McCaddy, that we have brought up before, and is the fucking lead actor in Pontypool. Pontypool, yeah. He plays Adrian in this, and it's like the youngest I've ever seen him in anything. Ray Milland replaces Sidney Blackmore as Roman Castavet, and Ruth Gordon fucking returns as Minnie Castavet. She's the only person from the original movie that comes back for this TV movie. It was directed by the editor of Rosemary's Baby, Sam Osteen. He also has a fucking awesome career. He edited Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Cool Hand Luke, The Graduate, Catch-22, Chinatown, Straight Time, Silkwood, Working Girl. Like He had a great career. Every single one of his directing credits is some terrible TV movie. It's wild because it's broken into three distinct parts. It first starts with Rosemary and Adrian slash Andrew, who is now like four or five. They have relocated to L.A. So Guy is now a big shot fucking actor. They live in Hollywood in a giant mansion. Rosemary takes the kid and they fucking bail and they go on the run. And through a confluence of, oh, the devil, dot, 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 Rosemary gets basically whisked away by a Greyhound bus that is being driven by nobody. And she just is in a bus purgatory in the desert forever. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. And then Adrian slash Andrew grows up to be a fucking street tough, question mark. So the movie jumps forward 20 years, even though it's clearly still fucking 1976. Stephen McCaddy is now Adrian, and they're like trying to get him to accept his fucking role as the devil's son and all this shit. And then it ends up being kind of this big reversal ending where... Oops, this other demon woman has seduced him and tricked him into fucking, and now they're going to like produce the spawn of Satan, but daughter this time, and they'll get it right next time. It's goofy. It's goofy as shit. It is very like cocaine disco (laughs) weird in a lot of ways. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. It sounds better than the horror novel sequel, Son of Rosemary, that came out in 97. Yeah. So that was the next thing is that book gets published by Ira Levin in 1997. I think it's like his last book, maybe? It is, yeah. Yeah. There was a remake planned in 2008 that was being developed by Platinum Dunes back when they were remaking all these fucking classic 60s and 70s and 80s horror movies. There was an actual remake that was made for TV in 2014 that was directed by Agnieszka Holland, who did Europa Europa. And Green Border that just came out this year and starred Zoe Zaldana. They like change some things here and there. Like they move from New York to Paris. So it's set in Paris for whatever reason. I wanted to rewatch this, but it's oddly hard to find anywhere. Like it's not really on streaming. There was like a DVD that's way out of print. I couldn't really find this one anywhere when I went looking for it. So I didn't have a chance to revisit this. Beyond that, last two things, Tannis Root's not real, not a thing, doesn't exist. Yeah. And Vidal Sassoon himself actually cut Mia Farrow's hair for the movie, so she got an actual Vidal Sassoon haircut. There we go. Cool. That is uh, (laughs) 
I think, going to be it for our discussion or reserve baby. Like, final thoughts? This isn't the first time you've seen this, right? We watched this in college, right? Mm, I can't remember if we did in college. Um, okay. This might have been my first time. All the way through? Straight through, yeah. Okay. But I, I, I've seen a lot of it before. Yeah, Polanski aside, it is a good movie. But if you decide you don't want to watch it because of Polanski, hey, more power to you. Sure, yeah. I do understand why it's a classic, but yeah, that's my final thought. If you decide you're not going to watch this movie and you still have sat through this entire episode and listened to us talk about it, cool, thanks, we appreciate it. Yeah, let this be the way that you learned about it, I guess. So anyway, we've had a long conversation about this. I think we have finally fully had the conversation that we have been dancing around for a very long time with a lot of movies you know we have always said that okay we're going to hit this point eventually where we're going to have to have this kind of conversation about creators that have done shitty things exactly right and we kind of always knew it was probably going to be this movie because this is the most obvious standout example of holy shit this is a great movie not just a great horror movie this is a great movie a major piece of american cinema from the 60s it is in the like library of congress archives Big deal movie, massively complicated, and will forever have that asterisk next to it, right? Which is aggravating. We've only scratched the surface with movie. I mean, there's millions of probably other podcasts that have dissected this movie as well. But just like this movie, we barely scratched the surface of all the bullshit with Polanski, too. Like, if you want to go check it out and see everything, it's all out there online. And I'm sure other podcasts have gone into the whole history as to, like, why he is not a good person. Well, like I said, there's multiple <laughs> documentaries that have been made about all this shit, too. So there's plenty more of that out there if you feel like pursuing it. But for the sake of this show, again, I'm glad we finally had the conversation, could get it out of the way, and we don't really have to rehash all this again. But I think it's important to at least give people that qualifier, yeah. right? And this is a good discussion, you know, about, again, how do we manage and deal with complicated art so yeah is art separated from the artist once they put it out there but yeah yeah so i guess that's it thanks again to heather for being on our on this episode too again go back listen to her plugs and go check them out and i'll be sure to include them in our show notes yep all right cool well that is going to be it for this episode of watch if you dare again a horror movie podcast if you hadn't figured that out by now hosted by me your movie monster boy aaron and my cowardly co-host derek as usual, you can find us on every podcatcher for free, ad free, all thanks to our patrons. If you would like to keep the show free and ad free, please consider donating to the Patreon. We have tons of bonus content on there uh, where we get into television, which is not part of the normal show lists. We're going to get some interviews lined up, some movie commentary. So there's all kinds of good stuff there. It's just five bucks a month. Again, please consider donating, or if you are already a patron, please tell your friends uh, to check it out. Uh, We greatly appreciate everybody who does contribute to that. It helps us out a lot to keep the show running, so we are very grateful. Patreon.com slash watch if you dare. And uh, again, because of that, we are on every podcatcher, so you can find us You know wherever you get your podcasts from. We are on social media at watch if you dare on Facebook and Twitter. My little brother, Jesse Mansfield, provides the music bumps beginning and end of all of our episodes. So big thanks to him. You can check out more of his stuff on Bandcamp. If you look for Opossums, Party Gator, Big Clown, he's got a lot of fun shit. Throw him a couple bucks, get some good music. Beyond that, I don't know what to say, Derek. It's the beginning of a new year, 2024. We got to welcome our (laughs) Lord and Savior, Sally. 
The year is one. God is done. Hail Sally. Hail Sally. <laughs> Hail Sally.